Anyway, Eric, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, it's 9 a.m. my side and like 6 p.m. in Seattle time. Uh, I've, I've only had about four hours of sleep, so if my questions are incoherent or, uh, or a bit weird, you know, just sort of rescue me. Rescue me from the, 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 the pit of misery I am in. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. I, I don't think I've got more sleep than that any night oh. this week, so... Okay, well, now you're one of the highest signals, uh, you know, the highest uh, signal to noise ratios in the space, like of all time, in my opinion. Um, you know, I, I was chatting with, I think you also met a chap named Gareth out when you're out in Hong Kong. Um, do you remember Gareth? The chance? Nah, you probably met loads of people. I, I, yeah, I can't place a face, I know the name. Nah, it's all right. It's in, okay. Hong, in Hong Kong, was that um, at scaling? No idea. Or okay. Yeah. No idea. I had no a, idea. I had a couple couple meetings there. Group meetings with people. Yeah, yeah. You get around. I'm awful with names too. It's like embarrassing. So. Don't oh yeah. Dude, I think that echo is is actually starting to come through a little bit. Um, yeah. Do you happen to have earphones? Maybe. Let me let me, uh, let me just turn down the volume a little bit. I got all the way up. Okay. I can't plug the my earbuds into the computer no. to get on the phone. Oh, like, I see. You got better? one of those. You got one of those Apple things. Yeah. And okay. No problem. I don't have my wired headset anymore. Is that is that better? Uh, testing. Yeah, it's all right. It's okay. I can keep turning it down because I, I hear you fine. Right. Okay. Great. Yeah. 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 That's that's great. Then I'll speak a little. Well, it right, doesn't okay. matter. So, okay, highest signal in the space. Uh, you get around a bit, and and the thing I want to sort of like int intro in. I mean, we've got loads of information that we can cover that we'd like. I'd like to get into, but some of the stuff I find extraordinarily interesting. And one of them is: is you're a biker, <laughs> dude. You bike around the world. This is so, gonna. This will be a much better conversation than any <laughs> any other subject. I think just talk about biking. We can totally do that, eh? Um, so I mean, okay. What? So, what kind of bike do you have? Well, if you you, you got your browser handy there for references, I do. Um, I think it's cb750k5.org. So I, I did a, I I did a rebuild on my uh, my old college bike, which had sat idle for twenty five years. Just wait, cb750k5. K five. That's its model number. Or all right. Org. K five is a nineteen seventy five. It's a Honda CB750. Dude, this so, is okay. So I'm not. I'm getting server not found. So cb75k5.org. Cb750k5. Oh, seven five zero. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, I got it. Oh. The, that picture there is what it looked like the first time I fixed it up and then wrecked it up a little bit. But then the second picture is a couple years later. That's 1986. Oh. I don't have any finished pictures on the on the blog here. But um, oh. it's uh, let me Dude, see. This is great. This is I'll, uh, great. 
I'll send you one. You can put it up or something. No, no, I'm going through it now. I'm going. Oh, I should. No, I should. But there's, there's, there's actually no. Yeah. You know, if you're going to show those pictures, it looks awful. So I gotta, I gotta send the. Uh, <laughs> I, I gotta. Are we on? Are we on Telegram or something? Uh, I don't think so. But we'll, we'll be on Telegram afterwards. We'll exchange numbers. All right. It'll be it'll be cool. We do it, we do it afterwards, and then and then during the editing, I can I can um, sort of overlay the photographs and make it look cooler than 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 the rough metal work that you've got on that website. <laughs> oh yeah, I've got. I mean, the problem is that what happened was I got about halfway done. I was it was spending too much time blogging. I needed to spend more time working, so I just started tweeting out pictures. There's a whole ton of tweets. I just every day I just you know threw something yeah. new about. Yeah. So, 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 so what's up with the biking? I mean, you just you just like get on a bike and, and go from one city to another, but like you go across the Gobi Desert kind of thing. Yeah, I hadn't. I, I rode in college. I got. I, I had a friend who had a bike. Um, he had a CB four hundred four, and the first time I ever rode a bike was on the back of his bike up to my folks' place in Maine when I was uh, my just just after my senior year of high school. Yeah. And uh, I loved it. So they happened to have an old bike in their shop as um it was taken it was a marina and it was taken on trade for a boat or something and so i got it it was laying on its side it was oil seeping out of the forks and everything it was just uh it was a wreck but i got it running and that that first picture is kind of a couple months after that was, that was uh, actually within a year after that and then the second picture i went down i worked for ibm for a, a year in 86 during college and i uh -huh. um I spent some time working on it. I repainted it. I did, I did some. I tried to. I tried to fix it up, and I did more damage than good, probably in the engine. Um, and that that was that second picture. And then, and then I uh, went to the Navy, and I I got out to California, and I met a friend while I was in flight school as a Marine that, that knew quite a bit about mechanics. And we we tore down the engine and rebuilt the bike. And then it was it was beautiful, uh, but it was more of a. It was more in the um, original style, very similar to the original style. So then um, it's, it never quite got it finished. And so then during the Rona, I spent the whole summer and some of the previous year uh, rebuilding it. And so it looks quite a bit different now and uh, put a lot of time, money and effort into it. And I drove it from Seattle to Salt Lake and then to Malibu and now it lives in my friend's garage in Malibu with my other bike, which is a Moto Guzzi. Um, uh, um, so you store your bikes over there with your mate? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you know Seattle, it's it's beautiful in the summer. It's like Southern California, but that's only for like two months. The rest of the year, yeah, I was going to say it's sunny outside. Oh yeah, it's, um, I when I when I, I moved into an apartment a, a while back, uh, a couple a few months ago, and I I just decided to look for the sunniest place I could find in town, and so this is it. <laughs> Um, that's a lake behind me when the, when the sun's not so bright, you can see the lake and, uh, yeah. we just got lucky today is a lucky day. It's completely clear. Um, oh, dude, it looks great. But most of the time, you know, it's just cloudy, drizzly, rain. It's like London here. So it's not yeah. a great place to ride. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I keep so. it in, I keep it in, uh, Malibu near Los Angeles. And, uh, yeah. that way you can ride to Mexico. You can ride out to Palm desert, Palm Springs, yeah. uh, Las Vegas, but you also do global driving, uh, riding, don't you? Like yeah, so I hadn't I hadn't ridden in about twenty years, and uh, I did a trip with a, my old college roommate um, across Mongolia, mainly from north to south, um, from Ulaanbaatar down to the border, and uh, that was that was great. Um, 
I, I, you know, I hadn't ridden in a long time and it was quite an eye opener. That was, now I've ridden quite a bit more around the world. And uh, I have to say that was probably the hardest place I could have picked that you could actually get somewhere. I mean, there's harder places, but you, you can't actually get anywhere. Uh, we did about- There's nowhere to get. Well, I mean, <laughs> like for example, crossing the Congo is, is, is uh, something that's on my list, but probably do that last. Um, um, it's, it's such, just sometimes impossible to, to get anywhere. But Mongolia can get places and, and uh, people are helpful and everything, but, but it's really pretty difficult. There's no roads, there's no bridges. You're, you're, you're driving through rivers and depends on, you know, a lot of things go wrong. So we, we, we did all right though. And uh, we, we made about 70 miles a day. And after we finished that, I started doing more trips. Um, uh, at the time my son was planning all my travel, which was great. And he, he was mm. amazing. He did that trip. Um, so that was my 50th birthday. I was in the Mon is in the Gobi Desert, Mongolia, with a satellite phone. Called my son and thanked him for the trip on my birthday. It was by yourself. Um, what? Sorry. You were traveling by yourself. No, I, that trip. Um, oh, was it with your mates? Yeah, same one yeah. that your that your son organized. The original plan came from my old high school friend who uh, we were at a high school reunion before we were 40, and and he said, "Hey, for our 40th, we should be in the middle of the Gobi Day." It was his idea. And, uh -huh. uh, but we ended up not doing it. He had another child and um, time, timing just didn't work out. So yeah. 10 years later, my son asked me what I wanted for my birthday. And I said, I want to be in the Gobi with a satellite phone and a motorcycle. And so he made it happen. And, um, you know, uh, there's a, uh, Ewan McGregor did this series called Long Way Around, which I hadn't seen. He did that in 2006. I, I did this trip in like 2000. 16 or something. So I'd, I'd never seen that. And people told me about it. I saw it when I came back. And I was like, geez, if I had seen this before I went, you know, I might have thought twice <laughs> because, you know, we had it at least as bad as he did. He never went south. So he didn't get a lot of the other stuff we got. But um, yeah, that was a good show. It, it really uh, kind of shows you what it was like. Um, but then we did, we did, uh, we went from the least populated place to ride on the planet um, to probably the most. We started. We went in, next year. Went to Delhi, New Delhi, and rented oh, some Indian-made yeah. Royal Enfields, and uh, four of us this time, and uh, rode around northern India for a couple of weeks. And it was it was really fun and interesting for the opposite reason. It was just it's just always throwing up people and yeah. Indian rules of the road uh, are interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've done. Um, let me see. On bikes, I've done London to London, ten countries in Europe through the channel. Uh, I've done uh, London. London. What do you mean by that? You got you start in London and end. I, I rented London? a Triumph in London. Went took the Channel train. Yeah. And um, did uh, Antwerp, Amsterdam, uh, Hamburg, Berlin, Prague, Munich. Oh gosh. Zurich. Spent four days in Neuchâtel for an outdoor concert, which was great in Switzerland. I would have loved that. And then came up over the mountains into uh, southern France, and that was the best part of the ride, riding through southern French wine country. Yeah. And yeah. then into Paris, and then back uh, through the Channel to London. Thunderstorms the whole way to the Channel and back from the Channel in, in, in the UK. <laughs> Classic. Uh. Uh, but everything else was pretty nice. Um, so I, I did uh, Thailand with a similar group of people. Yeah. Uh, four people uh, did Northwest Thailand, uh, the, the Mai Hong Song, um, uh, near uh, we coming and going from uh, 
uh, I forget the name of the town now, city up in the Northwest. Um, also is that, did- Is that the one, the Golden Triangle place where, where all, the, all the drugs used to flow through that area? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, okay. would, I would guess that would probably be on the waterfront by Bangkok. This is up in the mountains up in the Northwest. Chiang Mai is the is oh, yeah. where we started, and we did a big loop, my Hong <laughs> loop, and another part. Um, yeah. So it was like uh, two weeks, and then um, I also did by myself. I rented, uh, I bought a bike in in uh, Saigon and rode to Hanoi up Route One A. Oh, that's is. a nice one. That's a nice one. Yeah, I did a meetup um, in in Saigon, then rode up there, and that's when I decided to do. You know, Hanoi Crypto Week. Well, that's when I later when I decided to do the the conference. That was this year. I picked Hanoi, which was I mean, yeah, last year. That, sorry, last year. That was sorry, that was that was last year, year. Hanoi. Yeah, it was yeah. it was leap year, twenty twenty, and yeah. I before the conference we did a we, we called it Bit Bikers, being a biker club, and I had a bunch of people signed up, but we lost so many people for the run. It was just uh, myself and uh, a friend from college who's he's the guy that stores my bikes uh, in Malibu. So we did, we did, we went along, went up from, took the train up from uh, Hanoi and then rode up along the Chinese border, all along the border and back uh, to. Um, oh, that? that would be so good. How long? Dude, how long don't day? drop, don't drop that concept, bit bikers. Don't drop it. It's excellent, man. Like yeah. we, we did Columbia after the conference. I went down and we did, uh, oh, no, sorry, it's before the conference. We did two weeks in Columbia. I ran into the internet like that. Those guys have got those guys have like rogue hackers that create their own internet in there. Columbia. Yeah, I, I don't know. We were just riding and drinking and sleeping, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we, we, we started in uh, Bogota and ended up in Medellin, and oh. uh, we, we, we had you know four uh, or three BMWs, which was the first time I'd ever ridden those. That was fun. And, and in Vietnam, I rode a Vietnamese-made bike, a one, like a 125, which was actually a big bike for them. Yeah. And uh, yeah. let me see. Thailand, we had Triumphs and, and Japanese bikes. Mongolia, Japanese bikes. India was Royal Enfields. Um, and I've, uh, I don't know, there's some others, other trips too. But These are all rented bikes? Yeah, I don't, it's too much to ship a bike. Um, yeah. It's not worth it. It's actually nice to try out some other bikes sometimes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah I I'd love to do that next time. Next time you're out in Asia or something, and and you, and you want to go on a biking session, you you've got a biker mate, yeah. <laughs> All right. I mean, it, it's not. It's not the, I, I don't actually do biking. I mean, I, last time I rode a motorbike was like in 2000, and no, it was in Turkey. It was in Turkey. But before that, I was living in Taiwan for like a year, and uh, we went on holiday to Turkey, and yeah. um, you know, we just rented a bike and just sort of just went around. Um, that was fantastic. It was good fun. Um, but mainly it was in Taiwan that I was riding around, but you know, in, you know, in Taiwan, it's just like, now that I go, I would go back there and look at the traffic situation. And say, Holy shit. I, I just couldn't believe I was, I was, you know, in that sort of traffic very, situation. Very civilized in Taiwan. It is, it is. But when you look at it from, you know, when you just like, if you, if you were to look at the traffic, like as a newbie, it looks chaotic. There are definitely rules and stuff like that you can you can you can navigate through this. But at first, when you look at it, it looks very yeah. chaotic. Every, everybody's got their own rules, you know. Uh, yeah. Like India is especially interesting because people look at videos of people riding in India, whatever traffic, and they just think it's complete chaos. And if you yeah. once you jump into it, that's kind of what you think. 
and they have English rules of the road. It's all proper, you know. They, they got they got they got people out there paint bright, you know brush painting stripes on the sides of the road and the curbs and everything, just like in England. Um, but uh, stoplights and signs, everything is all looks very proper, but it's largely ignored. And um, it's like you know the English left, and we just still do what we do. But it, it took a it took a couple of days um, to figure it out. But but you figure out the rules, and they're just they're just socially. Yeah. Um, you know, embraced. And in the U.S., um, people say, "Well, oh, that's, you know, that must be, how does that work? It's complete chaos. We don't do that. And I'm like, well, we, there is a good example of this that people don't think about, right? What's, I don't know, you're in Australia, right? What's, what's the rule on a four-way stop? Who goes first? I'm in Hong Kong. Oh, you're in Hong Kong. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so what, what's, what's what, I've never what, driven what, an what, on, I know what the rule is there. When, when there's a four-way stop sign, Right. Yeah. Who goes first when a bunch of people are at the stop sign? Well, whoever whoever arrived first. Yeah, but that's not everybody what stops. That's not what the say. law says. <laughs> the oh, is that not? It, no, and this is what I mean, right? People, people who who've you know taken their driver's test recently, whatever you ask them, and they say, "Oh, the person on the right, person on the right goes first. Okay. And when you're on the when you drive right, I guess in Hong Kong you drive left. So yeah, it would be the left person side. on the left, right? Yeah, but. Um, it's not what anybody does because it doesn't really make any sense. It would be rude to go, you know, first if you were on the right, because who got there first, right? <laughs> and so, or if there's blocking traffic, you both go, even if you were not first, right? Because yeah. it doesn't make any sense to make people wait. So this is this kind of how it works in a lot of places, but especially India, right? If you, one of the, I wrote like 13 rules of the road that I learned while riding in India. One of them is, you know, never stop at a stop sign you'll get rear-ended because people, it's like stopping in the middle of a freeway for no reason, right? Like people have no idea why you stopped. <laughs> like, like what's going on? You know? And uh, same thing with the stoplight in most cases. A few, a, few, a few exceptions are, you know, in a major city where there's a cop standing right there watching and then people will, and if it's like four lanes, you know, intersection, that, that people will, people will kind of stop, but it's generally, um, you know, they have very, very well followed rules, but they're just not the rules that you read about. Yeah. Yeah. But you yeah. also did Top Gun, didn't you? I did. Yeah. So you're like a real bona fide Top Gun dude. Yeah. I, as I, well as an instructor. I, I yeah. Um, Top Gun's a long, long standing institution. It started after Vietnam when our kill ratio got really bad. And they uh, they set up the school, and and after that it ran the same way for right up until my my class was the first class that was um, it wasn't the first class of the new program, but it was the first that was they had moved the base at the same time, so I was the first in Fallon, Nevada. It used to be in San Diego, and um, they changed it from a course where you just go get some training, you go back to your squadron as a as a kind of a more experienced junior officer and you, you you teach other people what you know just as you know in your time and they they changed it to more of a, uh, a program to train instructors uh, what they used to do is they just pull instructors out of the class they'd invite them to come be instructors but this they had changed the program within a couple classes of me going to what they call a strike fighter tactics instructor program SFTI so they were it was a longer course because you were being trained not just in what they used to train, but also how to instruct, how to do presentations on the board and grade people and things like that. And so we became the standardization 
pilots for tactics um, mm. across the, the fleet um, after that. And there were basically, you know, there was an organization on the East Coast and one on the West Coast for the F-18s and, uh, and then Top Gun in, 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 the, in Nevada. And so I went, I went there, I think it was 10 weeks, um, graduated and then went to the East Coast um, Strike Fighter Weapons School and taught for two years. And then I left the Navy. I got out and um, uh, started business. Long and unafraid, as we would say, as pilots. Uh, yeah, no, no retirement, nothing from the Navy, very little money. And I started a startup company oh, in '90. I've been doing it in my bedroom for a, for a year or so, but like '98, '99. This is all software, right? Yeah, yeah. Just I had a couple options. I had written some software the Navy was using. They probably still use for flight scheduling, yeah. and then. Um, I was. I had some other software that was just configuration management stuff that that I I wrote to um, actually work with another guy who did a lot of the early writing, and uh, that was to just help automate the network that I had set up in our command in that in that training squadron because it was early internet days. So mm -hmm. I was running wires. I was running two NT three five one servers. I ran. I, I terminated all the wires. Pulled them through the ceilings. You know. I, I registered our .mil domain, navy.mil uh, domain. It was one of the, I mean, we had actual email addresses with our domain, you know, it was cool. Nobody uh -huh. had that. <laughs> you know? And uh, then I got involved in the uh, uh, CIPRANET, which is a secret internet protocol routing network the Navy has and, and did some advising on uh, training systems that were on that. And, and I also had my, you know, daily flying duties and training uh, and teaching duties. like. You know, so, do you think the Sippernet was the was the roots of your sort of cypherpunk? You know, your cypherpunk roots there. No, no, no. Okay. Um, so, I, I got a computer science degree just because I ever since uh -huh. like early '80s I, I liked writing code, and uh, um, when I went to the Navy, I I, uh, I sold my Mac. I had one of the first, you know, the, the original Mac One Twenty Eight image writer thing and I saw that and I decided this is, takes too much time it's gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus on what I'm doing so I I got but I got sucked back into it by the Navy when they found out I had a degree and everything so I started doing stuff side projects um, and during that time um, I went through some kind of political transformation while I was in the Navy probably started it around 91 um, as a consequence of the Tailhook Convention, which was a big scandal in '91. I was in. I was at. I was there. Um, and so, at some point, I ended up getting very interested in doing, you know, maybe leaving and doing a business. And I, I started doing selling, giving away software, and then shareware. Uh, and a lot somewhere along those lines, I started reading. Um, I just read a couple books, and one of them was Klein and Fall, the American Programmer. Um, another one was applied cryptography, which is a classic, and it's where I kind of learned the essentials of cryptography. Um, and then I got very interested in PGP and Digicache, um, I, uh, and internet telephony and stuff like that. But I was still full time in the Navy. So um, I even contacted uh, Digicache, it's David Jones' com company in Amsterdam when they were just getting going because uh, I'd read their patents and uh, one of them had my name on it. 
<laughs> oh, right. You're right. So they hired a guy with, with my, I have a Dutch name. So they had hired a college kid with the name Eric Foskill. Exact, exact same name, right? Well, his first name ended in K. Okay, so it wasn't you. Yeah, it wasn't me. So, <laughs> so I contacted them. They never answered me. And uh, so anyway, I had, this ex I had this experience with DigiCash and PGP and everything. I had this old, it's probably still up there, this old PGP key, um, you know, registered. Um, but uh, I, I, I just, it was just background knowledge. And, but I was aware of a lot of the stuff going on and, you know, crypto wars and privacy stuff. And, and, uh, you know, I became a libertarian early in the 90s. I was a card-carrying party member in the U.S. for like 20 years. And um, later I dropped that and just decided I'm an anarchist. I had to, you know, once I, once I got done reading Rothbard, I was, I was done with that. So um, this is the second time that name has come up in, in these Indubas. I had an Indubba with Max Hillebrand, and uh, he mentioned Rothbard too. I, I haven't. I've. I've. I think I got as far as Mises, but I didn't go to Rothbard. I, I would start with Rothbard and then work back to Mises. Really? Oh, okay. yeah. Mises is just he's he's anachronistic. Uh, he makes certain mistakes that Rothbard doesn't really make. And uh, although I think Rothbard does carry forward a couple of his uh, issues, but um, Rothbard I think was hired to make to 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 update um Mises's work to bring it make it more current and readable um and he did an excellent job at that but he actually ended up adding some of his own observations which were which were good especially around monopoly um and he, he just writes more clearly he's more exact it doesn't it's not casual about it but um so that's why i would start there it's just it's, it's easier to read it's more comprehensive and it's um um adds more a little bit more and makes fewer errors mm. um i maybe i would start maybe with menger and then go to you know rothbard but it, it's it's you know reading and, and i would only read man economy in the state the the other works by rothbard are, in my opinion kind of sloppy um like i find a lot of people that have read you know what is it what has government done to our money and I, I i went and read it at some point to find out where you know <laughs> what was going on I'm like, man, this is just superficial and misleading um, in things he doesn't do in Man of Economy of the State. Um, so yeah. it's, a, it's a tough read because it's, it's big, it's long, and I had to read every, I read a few pages a day and I just go through everything and just make sure I could prove to myself what are essentially theorems. And um, if I couldn't, I would just try to figure it out. And I always eventually come around and figure it out, but um, there were a couple things that um, didn't quite add up, and um, there's. And, but the other thing that I think about when I think about economics, the way it's written um, in in what we call the Austrian school, I don't really care about any others. Just nonsense. But um, it's it's still too informal um, for my taste, and we use these terms: praxeology, catalactics, Austrian economics, and they they don't really have clear definitions, so they're really not applied clearly. So I, I tend to use the term rational economics. Um, mm -hmm. Like in, in reading Rothbard in the beginning and then Mises as well, um, and then, I, you know, Menger, you, you get the feeling, but it's not clearly stated. Rothbard does a pretty decent job, you know, that this is an axiomatic system, right? We have, we have, some, we have a small set of assumptions um, 
axioms, and then we derive everything from that. It's not observational or empirical in any way. But the way they talk about it, you know, I, it took me a while to kind of clearly come to this conclusion because the way they talk about it, it's kind of fuzzy. And Rothbard talks about, and Mises talks about history, you know, history-based economics. Really what they're talking about is empiricism, right? Yeah. Observing what's happened and, yeah. you know, deriving theories from that. Um, but he, but brother's very explicit, you know, theories, theories are theories. They're not proven and, and, and uh, they're not, uh, basis of the scientific theory is repeatability and you know, things are repeatable because the systems are, you know, um, fairly predictable, but we're talking about human beings and preferences and these are not as predictable. <laughs> They're not scientifically predictable. Um, and that's the basis of this system of economics. So I would, you know, at some point, if I have a lot of spare time, I might just write up rational economics, like let's, let's actually put this in uh, on a strong footing, like uh, a logician would do, not a social scientist, you know? um, because that's really what it is. And I find that people don't, if they don't read closely enough, they're not seeing that. Um, you'll see in the beginning of the, these works, um, you know, human action and man economy state, they're talking about, um, what I call axioms, and I don't know if they ever actually use those terms, um, but you know we have the action axiom and the time, axiom of time preference, and people have heard those, you know, but they talk about these ideas as if they're universal or obvious truths, right? Well, there is no such thing. These are assumptions, and if you accept the assumptions, then you accept the conclusions using pure reason that you can derive from these assumptions. And that's a, that's geometry. It's an axiomatic system. Um, and uh, that's true of mathematics. We didn't used to think it was true, but mathematics, you know, is based on assumptions. Um, and ever since Russell's paradox showed that it, you know, there was a problem. And the same is true of probability theory. Um, and so we have we have economic theory, you know, an axiomatic system, probability theory, mathematics. Um, you put these together, and you have all the stuff that makes Bitcoin. You know, I, I add one more axiom, which is, you know, we as, we assume we can this this can this can work in defense against the state. We can't prove it. Um, so we, so if we want to believe that it's has these properties, we have to make certain assumptions. Um, so I find that very interesting. And we have the intersection of these different axiomatic systems that are all based on certain assumptions. Then once you, if you're willing to accept those assumptions, there's something to work from, you can derive the rest. Okay. Since, since uh, COVID has hit, um, has your opinion changed at all on, on the, the efficacy of the state? No. 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 Okay. No. Right. no, no. I mean, uh, just, I, you know, it, it can be it's a time for an update. And uh, since, since, uh, since this COVID situation has hit, um, you know, it, it becomes very, very transparent. Like to what degree the state is prepared to go to do certain things, yeah. and um, if not, it's probably confirmed your 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 hypotheses. 
thus far. Hey, let me shut my door. Keep hearing traffic noise outside. All right. All right. Yeah. Now uh, I, I know you, you. I know you've got a. a I think it's a four-stage um, uh, model of the state. Okay. Before we do that, do you want to explain to us the uh, the security? You know, the threat model. The of Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, so. I mean, there's Bitcoin as a system, and then there's you know individual people with their money. And there's there's different aspects of security. How you keep your keys from getting lost? How you you know prevent yourself from generating a key with a weak seed or something, right? Um, how do you prevent double spends? Or how do you how do you guard against yourself being double spent? Right? Um, these are all you know individual levels of security. Um, but Bitcoin itself exists as a system that can defend against the state. That's why it's necessary. If, if, if the state wouldn't pull a Liberty Reserve, um, then you know, any company just put together a decent money and it would be fine. Um, an individual, right? So the state has an interest in um, people using its money because money is a state money is a tax system specifically because it's not produced in a competitive market. Um, and in other words, they have a monopoly control over production of the money. Therefore they get a monopoly price if they can get people to use it. Whereas all other you know, non-state monies are produced at market price. So they're not, there's no signage, which means there's no inflation in the production. You know, gold production is not inflationary in terms of price. Neither is Bitcoin. But, um, and there's no, because there's no tax taken out of it and it's produced at market price. So nothing produced at market price is inherently inflationary. Prices of things stay the same despite people making more of them, right? Um, yeah. You stay, you know, there's always fluctuations, but um, but as a, as a, as a, as an economic principle, that's it. And that's, that's one of the things that I find um, Mises and, and Rothbard and others, you know, they, they tend to mistake. And, and this is this is one of the major critiques I had of, of human action was um, Mason says this giant hand wave over his explanation of, you know, what's essentially uh, Gantelon effect. And um, it, it's just an error. It's a clear error. But uh, each time he's making one of these errors, he's doing it in the same context. It's, it's in denigrating state money. Um, apparently hadn't, if you don't figure out what's the problem with state money, then you, then you do that for the wrong reasons. And I, I would say, like I mentioned in my, I think in the intro of my book, like he sacrifices his objectivity to his passion um, and makes these errors. Um, you know, so, State money is a tax system. Bitcoin needs to exist. It, it has to be able to prevent control by the state. And Satoshi was clearly aware of that. Um, and the security model that presents itself from the code or from the white paper, uh, the principles that are laid out, uh, isn't always quite so obvious. And I spent some time just trying to 
think through, you know, what, what, what is it that dis distinguishes Bitcoin from everything else? And, you know, so therefore what, what are the defining characteristics and what is the actual security model for the threat against Bitcoin itself? Um, so I, one aspect of it, I spent probably a year just thinking about on and off. And I, I, then all of a sudden it just came to me. I was walking on the street one day and it just came to me. Sorry, I'm getting these crazy notifications that I need to shut off so I don't have, making all this noise. Um, second. Okay, hopefully that will stop those. <laughs> um, so the... It just came to you. So, some revelation well, just came to you. It was one aspect, street. you know, okay, so we have a... We have a 51% attacker, right? State steps in, says, "Well, you know, we can." The phases you mentioned, um, you know, the, uh, they present themselves from the security model. There's different aspects of the security model which anticipate different phases of yeah. the threat. Um, you know, I, my memory's horrible. And you so can forget my own writing. And you, can, and you can flip between the different states. Um, well, sure. I mean, you you have a stage where. It's, you know, okay, so Bitcoin is saving people from paying tax. So there's an impact on tax if it's significant. But initially, there's no impact at all, so nobody cares, right? There's, the threat is dormant. Nobody cares. They call that the honeymoon phase. Um, of course, that's where it has to start. And then you get to the point where it starts having an impact. Um, you know, there's this money laundering going on, which means the state can't see what you're doing, right? Um, there's two aspects to the tax. One, tax. One is signage, the ability to create the money monopoly protection, you know, make it at lower than cost and um, at a cost lower than its face value, essentially. And um, the other one is transparency. If you can see what everybody's doing financially, it's much easier to tax what they're doing. So the state wants both of those things uh, from its money. That's why it has it. And um, if there's no impact, it doesn't care. But you know, then there starts being an impact, or they start recognizing the potential impacts. So you start seeing laws being applied, and that's already been, you know, that's already gotten pretty far. Uh, some places like Nigeria, it's just completely outlawed. Um, other places in the U.S., you know, there's a lot of stuff that's outlawed, like not paying your tax on your capital gains when the dollar drops. Right? I think they've dropped the 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 Nigerian ban. They banned it and then dropped it again. I, I can't I can't keep up, but um, and I don't watch news, not even much in the Bitcoin space. So, um, but you know there there's different aspect. Like in Vietnam, it's not not legal to use it as currency, but you can own some, speculate on it, whatever. Right? There's all these different aspects in the U.S. It's not legal to you know I can't you can't go on a exchange and uh, trade with them without providing identity and that being reported coinbase reported all my transactions they sent me a letter telling me that you know i was part of that lawsuit and so they they sent out which i expected i had an account there for a while and uh you know i wasn't naive about it so um you know that's that's the next phase where you get into this um black market phase where if you want to do the things that give you the benefit from bitcoin you have to be willing to not obey right if you don't for example, signage. Well, people say, well, the government can't print it, but they can tax you, take away the same value, right? And so when the, say the dollar drops in half, you have a capital gain in Bitcoin of, what's that, 100%? So now you're paying tax on the dollar dropping. Okay, so if you pay it, you're, you're not getting the, certainly the full benefit, you're getting some. 
So um, you don't get the benefit from the technology, you get the benefit from not obeying, right? And Bitcoin makes that easier to do. With the dollar, if you hold it, you're paying, right? If you, if you, you just pay the inflation tax. Um, with Bitcoin, you know, they have to come get it from you. So it's different. Anyway, so, so there's this, uh, what I call the black market phase, this phase of laws being applied to it, which is trivially easy to do. Bitcoin has no defense against that. I've written all the code, it's not in there, you know? Um, and so that may or may not be very effective. It may actually, you know, uh, increase or decrease use of Bitcoin, who knows, but um, it may not be sufficient for the state to get what it wants, which is, you know, control over the money. And then, you know, the obvious next step is uh, to step in and start mining. Um, so you see these aspects in the security model, the black market phase. What we're talking about in the security model is, is the ability to hide. People use this term decentralization, this term privacy, but these are, these are techniques. The, the techniques exist to allow people to hide, right? Decentralization alone does not provide security. Um, I use the example of companies. Companies around the world are highly decentralized, but they're also taxed and they pay their tax. Otherwise they're black market. So decentralization alone does not um, prevent you from being controlled. You have to, the, the benefit of decentralization is you, you've got to go control a bunch of people and they can hide, right? But you can control a bunch of people if they're not hiding. Um, so, Decentralization is a hiding technology, right? It allows people to spread out the risk, take a little bit, bit themselves and hide. Uh, unlike say Liberty Reserve, which it was easy, just they were very visible, it just went down there and take them. So um, privacy in terms of transactions, you know, is another way, another technique to allow people to hide what they're doing. Um, and uh, the aspect of mining being, you know, uh, only requiring essentially energy and internet, um, makes it easier to, to move it to places where people can hide. So that's a, that's a, that's a central aspect, you know, the risk sharing principle, right? People, people can share risk and that, that helps you uh, in this black market phase. But then you get into the, the observation that the state just step in and set up a big mine and they don't need to do it everywhere. Actually more, it's more effective and more profitable to do it one place on the earth. Um, it doesn't matter how many of them do it. All that matters is how much economic power they have. Um, how much tax revenue can they generate? So they, and it doesn't, you know, mining as a big miner is not, it's not, it's not something you do at a loss. Bigger miners are more profitable. Um, so and they're, they're disproportionately more profitable. So there's an advantage to being that big visible, you know, miner that, that can censor. So they get to 51% and they start censoring and now no transaction gets through unless it's approved, which is the way that, existing financial system works around the world. So that's, mm. that's, that's a nice thing. Um, and so the question that came to my mind was, well, how do, how do you know, so the, the second principle of, of Bitcoin is that it uses energy sinking um, as its authority for who gets to order the transactions. Um, so you have, you have two, two, basic models that any system would have to conform to either either the the authority is based on something that's on the chain or it's not There's only two possibilities right so if it's if it's on the chain the chain is proving itself um then 
uh, we, we call that stake. And if it's, if it's not on the chain, it's work. And work is always going to boil down to, you know, energy and the stuff that, uh, that gets produced with energy. Um, but the interesting thing is that um, if you sink energy into the system, which is what Bitcoin does, more can always be added. With stake, once you have a controlling stake, whatever that is, nobody can remove you. You control this is, history. This is, this is, yeah, this is why uh, proof of stake coins are shit coins. Yes, because they, they pretend to have the security model of Bitcoin, but they do not. Because uh, So the question is, um, with, so that's the second principle, right, that Bitcoin is energy sinking, it, that that's mm -hmm. what allows people to add more energy, more, more power to, to overcome the sensor. And a staking system, the sensor cannot be, cannot be removed if it doesn't want to be. Um, so it perpetually controls the coin. And the, but the third principle is, you know, okay, well, who pays for that? <laughs> who pays for that? That was the question on my mind. Nobody, nobody had proposed to really rash an economically rational solution for that. We'll all donate. Well, that's economically irrational. You know, we're going to have to, everybody's going to have to operate at a loss so they can save money. It doesn't make any sense. So um, Satoshi never, never suggested a solution to that. He kind of said, you know, community get bands together and we all donate and we, we force out the censor. So at one point it occurred to me that, well, this is just a natural behavior of Bitcoin. He designed it or she designed it and didn't know, right? When, when, mm -hmm. when, a, when a transaction is not being confirmed, you increase your fee. That's a natural behavior. And when a transaction is not being confirmed because it's censored, whether you know that or not, you raise your fee. And as those fees are rising, the censor is not able to collect them because they're not confirming the transactions. So um, that provides increasing excess profit to anybody who does want to take them. So now we're paying for that additional hash power with fees. If Bitcoin was an inflation only coin, it wouldn't be censorship resistant because the censor would earn the same amount as, um, as every other miner. And there'd be no way to incent those other miners, at least not you'd end up with a side fee market, which is fine. That, that, I mean, I actually mentioned that in my book. There's nothing wrong with side fees, except they're not private, right? The, the putting fees in the transaction makes them as anonymous as the transaction. So um, you, either, you either develop a side fee market um, to push out the sensor in, a, in an inflation-only coin, um, or it doesn't work. Um, so fees rising incents more hash power and potentially overcomes the sensor, at that point, the sensor has to decide whether to operate at a loss. Up until that point, the sensor is perfectly profitable. You know, they're making money and they're censoring the chain. But at the point where fees rise and now they're at 40, you know, 9.9% and they're they're fundamentally losing this, this conflict, um, they have to decide whether to subsidize their operations with tax revenue. And that subsidy, um, the state is the only entity that can perpetually operate at a loss in the money because it's, it's first of all, it has the power to compel tax. It always operates at a loss, but um, more specifically, it has its own revenue stream that it's protecting, you know, by it's protecting tax revenue with the dollar, the euro, rand, whatever um, against Bitcoin. So it's not a net loss and they're, that's economically irrational for anybody else to do.
to perpetually operate a loss to suppress the chain, so um, to suppress transactions. So this is a this is a question: How does it defend against this entity that's you know essentially being profitable by operating at a, at a loss in Bitcoin? And that's due to the, what I call the fee premium. It's not the total amount of fees. It's much smaller than that, right? Or pre presumably much smaller than that. It's the difference between the prevailing fee rate in the censored market and the prevailing fee, fee rate in the black market, mm. right? Because that difference is the loss that the state is taking um, by not accepting those transactions um, uh, if, if they have a competitive you know, group of miners that are and they're having to, having to increase their hash rate in order to overcome that without being paid for it. So that, that's what I call power balancing, the third principle, which is Bitcoin is power balancing. It's, it's fee-based. And it, so it, it, you, know, you need these, these three principles and you don't have Bitcoin. And those are the essential principles that, that are laid out in the code and the paper that you share the risk, uh, both for accepting Bitcoin and for mining, which is a form of accepting. Uh, you spread it around and you sync energy in the system, which allows you to push out the sensor and you um, have a fee-based um, system of confirmation, which allows the, sensor, the, the people who are pushing, able to push out the sensor to be paid for it by the people who want their transaction confirmed, which is economically rational. It does, however, imply that, you know, that premium is an extra cost that people are having to pay to, to use this money. And if they don't want to pay it, they won't have it. And that's the question, you know, do you, is it, would that be sufficient? Well, who knows? Who knows how much the state or the taxpayer is willing to pay to continue to suppress this money versus how much the market, you know, individuals are willing to pay to get their uh, unauthorized transactions confirmed. So that's not a knowable thing, right? This is one of the things we're not, you have to assume it. If we assume Bitcoin's going to work or can work, then that's the assumption you're making. I call it the, um, uh, the, you know, the axiom of resistance, right? It is possible to resist the state and this is how it works. Um, but all we know is it's possible. We, we can't prove that it will happen or that it won't. I see. I see. Right. So, so further to this, um, this, this body of work that you created with, uh, you know, these three uh, basic principles, um, you've also gone into, you've also created a book which actually illustrates all the different sorts of fallacies and misunderstandings associated with Bitcoin in, in many different regards. Um, and one of them, one of them is, is the energy usage. Now, I, I personally, I'm okay with this. I, I think I have a firm enough grasp of the understanding of why it's actually a good thing. Um, but I'm kind of keen to hear your opinion on this because, you know, I, I'm getting educated people who are who are loosely throwing around the sayings along the lines of Bitcoin is boiling the oceans. And I think there's an element of, of, of ideology that's going on there because, uh, you know, any sort of like a sort of rational uh, rebuttal that I give them is, is, is completely, you know, disregarded. So I, I'm quite keen to hear your, your, um, your take on this. Well, uh, I'll, uh, I'll avoid a deeper conversation about who owns the oceans and, property rights, et cetera, and who cares, right? Um, but just getting into um, maybe another approach to these questions, um, the question of um, um, what's, what's more energy consuming, you know, 
the global state money system or the Bitcoin money system. Um, you, there's a there's a theory that I that I have um, yeah, essentially that you know all all production um, resolves to energy. Right? Nothing nothing moves. Nothing can be done without energy. Nothing happens. Right? Energy makes things move. So all things that are produced, done, secured, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all boil down to energy costs, human labor, food for them, et cetera, right? All these things are energy based, um, the, 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 the common denominator of all production. So um, if you look at the energy cost of securing Bitcoin, you can say, well, okay, the whole, the whole system, this is, this, is, um, this is what it consumes in energy. And therefore, that's its price, right? You can, you can look at that pretty clearly. They're, they're, they're very tightly correlated. So um, the, the, the same must be true of dollars, euros, whatever. So if you're, if you're a person who has a choice to use Bitcoin in one situation or use a dollar, the question is, well, when you do, when you do that individually, you're making that choice. Right? You're the one who's burning the energy. Right, you're causing the production to happen. It's not the miners, right? They don't get paid; they're not going to do it. So, um, by creating demand, by your demand, uh, whether that's paying fees or just demanding the money so you can use it for something, you're creating that energy um, consumption. Same thing with the dollar, right? If nobody used the dollar, it wouldn't consume energy. It would be non-produced. It wouldn't be trucked around. It wouldn't be accounted for with all these computers. There would be no security guards. Blah blah blah. Right. So. The one you choose to use is the one that's more useful to you, right? By definition, so that means it's cheaper for you, and it's more efficient for you. In other words, this is you know probably explained more more clearly in the in the book. But the one people are using is the cheaper one, and the cheaper one is the one that's using less energy. This this very hard you know people have tried right? How do you how do you sum up the entire energy consumption of the dollar or the euro or, or the global fiat monetary system, or state monetary system. I don't say fiat because Bitcoin's a fiat, <laughs> believe it or not. So uh, fiat is not the distinction. It's the fact that it's monopoly money, which I often just call state money. So you have monopoly money, which, which, um, which consumes a certain amount. But if people prefer to use another money, it means it's, it's, it's less costly for them. So it's cheaper. So it's using less energy. Um, it's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is who cares, right? What energy gets used on. Um, if Bitcoin, you know, if, if Bitcoin grew to a certain level where it was causing energy prices to just rise astronomically, what would happen? It would use less energy, right? It, 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 because the price is rising. The price of the, when the price of the energy rises, Bitcoin uses less energy. So it can't, like people say, well, it'll use all the energy in the world. Like, that's, that's absurd, right? Because as all the energy in the world is getting used, you have this you know, exponentially increasing price curve for energy and Bitcoin is therefore exponentially using less of it. So it's, it's, it's just kind of silly. Um, and, and who's to say what's a better use of you know, energy for things? Right? These are all, everything that people buy, consume, whatever, produce, it's all based on human preferences. And if people prefer to spend their energy money on Bitcoin, then why not? 
uh, I knew I would be coming into this uh, this discussion with uh, with um, you know perspective changing. I was prepared to have my perspective changed in a number of things because because you're so far ahead of the game of anybody else in the space that that's yeah it's just people are going to cotton on to this like years later and like oh yeah Eric was right yeah I mean I'm I'm just maybe I'm just nuts or I'm but I'm just I've just gotten very used to being misunderstood and I just I just I'm okay I understand but, it it's good for me no so no no it's, this this whole series of fallacies and whatever I write I didn't try to write a book I I just got sick of saying the same things over and over again a hundred and 48 characters at a time or whatever it is. And uh, I, I just started putting them in our wiki on the Bitcoin repo and then linking to them because I was familiar with editing the wiki because I was writing documentation. So, um, you know, the fallacies just piled up because I, you know, there's so many things that people believe that just seem like nonsense to me. And and then it was, but there's other things, right, that, that, uh, that I figured out or that were maybe obvious to everybody, but I wrote down in a clear way so you could point, point them to people. So book isn't like comprehensive. It's not a, you know, front to back explanation of Bitcoin. It's, it's just a bunch of random topics that I strung together, um, put them in alphabetical order, organized them by major category and stuck in a book. Um, because people kept asking me and there were a bunch of people that actually made PDF books out of it. And I was like, I, you know, it's, I should just do this, have a conference. It'll be fun. Go to Vietnam, <laughs> you know, ride some motorcycles. And uh, so we produced the book for, for crypto econ and gave, you know, gave them out to everybody. And that was it. I only, I think I printed 200 copies and they're still sitting in a motorcycle shop in Vietnam, the ones that didn't get handed out. I've only got one myself. It's, it's the back of the room there. Where is it? There's the sole remaining copy on the, you know, on the, on the little block there of, uh, right. of crypto economics, the first version. And so, you know, when I got, when I get done with the motorcycle project and I, I came home, I decided to, I decided to get it out in, uh, on Amazon. So, spent some time on that but this was not you know it's not an, an attempt to be comprehensive or anything it's just a bunch of random yeah. ideas. it's still a valuable contribution to the space now what what are the what are the typical ones that are um, the ones that get asserted a lot that brought brought up a lot maybe we can go into like a top three or something like that well it, it changes over time like like I've had a I've, I don't know I, I've had an inkling to write a few things in the last few weeks I haven't and I don't even ask me to try to remember what they are because they, they come and they go and if they keep coming up over and over again I, I used to just write them down get them off my chest and yeah. to remember them and let other people critique them yeah. and I've got you know I've got a lot of good critiques I made a number of changes and I, I the entire history of the book up until the first publication is in the wiki. Uh, every single change ever made. And there's some significant changes. You know, I, I, uh, I sometimes I just recognize things. You know, errors myself or other people convince me, and other times they don't. But um, anyway, the the more the more significant ones, the ones that during some time period were very common. And I find it interesting that like some of the prevailing theories on how some things worked have just kind of died out. Um, others seem to you know have long legs, but um, so, you know, for a time, proof of work hard fork was the explanation for how we defended against the state 51% attack and didn't make any sense to me. Um, and I wrote this topic up, the proof of work fallacy is probably a misnomer, but um, I explained that several things that go wrong when you do that. And then I think there was some several shit coins that went through this and <laughs> exactly what happened to them. 
um, from my recollection. You know, this, every time you every time you fork some, you know, fork yourself off, you you, you reduce the size of the economy, um, and you don't get rid of the miners you're trying to get rid of. You get rid of the ones you're trying to keep, the smaller ones. The bigger ones are more profitable, and so they retool and come back. Uh, they're anonymous anyway, so how do you know who you're getting rid of, right? And I asked one of the world's biggest miners this uh, way back, not too long after I wrote that topic. We were on a panel together, and I, I leaned over and I said, "Hey, you know, if there was a proof of work hard for it, what would you do?" No, we just retool and keep mining because <laughs> they got capital, they got access to capital, they got saved capital, and they have experience, they have infrastructure, they have a business, right? Somebody mining in his basement, he's like, "Screw it, <laughs> you know, I'm done. I'm already losing money." Right. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why it didn't really make sense. And then we get into this, you know, well, who's who's in control of this process? Right. And essentially what the process becomes is some authority telling you what's now the new chain. How else how else do you know? Right. Everybody has to somehow know. So you've, you've undone the key innovation of Bitcoin, which is nobody does that. Right. Satoshi laid down the first block and, you know, he was the authority for that. After that, nobody, nobody gets to tell you. So then you get in, you know, you get into problems of how do you coordinate these changes without, you know, miners front, you know, the, the threat front running you, you're telling everybody, you're not telling them they're anonymous. So there's, there was, you know, that was a really common one. And, and I find it interesting. You just don't hear it very much anymore. You know, some people that are maybe new and they, they've watched some old, blog, you know, with some old videos on Bitcoin and stuff, they, they'll say those things, but I don't hear it nearly as much as I used to. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that was there was no other explanation. Nobody had another way it worked. And, you know, I gave I gave people another explanation to me and maybe that was working. I, you know, I don't want to give myself too much credit, but maybe uh, it's I'm happy. Yeah. Like I came up with a better explanation than we're just going to, you know, somebody's going to tell us there's a new fork that we need to follow and hope that the miners don't know about it. You know, <laughs> hope that enough people come along that the money doesn't you know, keep tanking every time we do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a number of, a number of uh, uh, shitcoin creators. I, I, think, I think during 2017, a lot of us got really irritated and pissed off with, with uh, shitcoin shillers uh, and, and the creators of these shitcoins. That's, you know, I think this, this time round, you know the, the the lesson might have sunk in because it, it's translated into quite a lot of money lost, right? So um, I think also that's a, a, one of the reasons why why the Bitcoin community at the moment seem on edge now because they know that a lot of uh, new people coming into the space they're going to be exposed to these these shit corners that are that are that are um, pushing pushing security security models supposed security models on the same level as Bitcoin. Whereas it's definitely not. People, you know, let the buyer beware. People lose money, then they learn lessons, and you know, people get smarter over time. It takes care of itself. Yeah, yeah. it's not. Yeah. You know, people that get all like, I don't, I don't have any problem with altcoins. I don't even have any problem with shitcoins. I just, you know, they 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 need a name, and there was already a name. So, but they needed <laughs> a clear definition. There wasn't a clear. You know, some people say shitcoins anything but BTC, and some people yeah. say shitcoin is anything you know, that's pre-mined or scam, whatever. What, what is the scam? What is the thing that makes it shitty? 
right? I mean, Bitcoin could have been, Litecoin could have been Bitcoin. Satoshi could have fired off the first version and it could have been Litecoin. And that wouldn't be a shitcoin anymore, right? Um, it's the principles of Bitcoin that, that he laid out in the paper are what I mean when I refer to Bitcoin, you know, yeah. these are the principles. Um, and then I, I spent some time to deduce what I thought were the fundamental principles of it, which are called cryptodynamic principles, the forces that secure the, the money against, um, you know, inflation and, and um, um, you know, secure transfer of the units, I guess, and, and production of the units. And those principles apply to a lot of coins. They don't apply to any proof of stake coins. They don't apply to, um, you know, fee coins that don't have integrated fees. Um, you could say, well, maybe if they had a side fee market, but that's not in the coins. The coin itself is shitty. Bitcoin um, initially didn't have any fees. Right, and it wasn't secure. <laughs> it could have easily been overpowered. And, but, it, but it had a model to uh, move from the honeymoon phase where it didn't need it into a phase where hopefully it'll get to at some point where, um, and it's not, remember, it's not the level of the fees. That's, that's double spend protection. The, the mm. level, the cost of reversing a transaction has to be higher than the benefit. So, um, you know, you either wait, you pay that cost in time, you wait for one, six, a hundred confirmations, or you um, don't spend, um, you know, an amount that's well worth reversing. If you get onto some uh, weaker coins, then you would probably not want to secure as much because it would be too, you know, it would be too uh, worthwhile to reverse the transaction. So, um, you know, Bitcoin has been obviously much less secure against double spends than it is now, but it wasn't a shitcoin back then, right? So there are some coins that are much less secure against double spends than Bitcoin, but they're much more useful for smaller transactions. Bitcoin is useless for, I don't know, anything under a hundred bucks. I mean, who's going to be, I don't know what it is now, 20 bucks. So like 20% yeah. of your, you know, it's just, you know, you, you get, you get paid in Bitcoin and then you spend it. So now you, Two transaction fees at twenty bucks each. You spent forty bucks out of your hundred, right? You know. <laughs> Sorry for normalizing everything to dollars, but this is what we have to do. Um, so yeah, it's just not useful. It's a it's a really shitty coin for small transactions. You know. Now you can talk about lightning, etc., but you still you still have to settle uh, in order to to secure yourself. Um, and you know you need to you need to open and closing transactions. You're still paying fees, and those. Um, uh, in, in a way, limit your utility. Plus, you know, you have you have other weaknesses when you have other security issues you got to deal with with those with layering systems. Um, what what I find systems? Is, I'm sorry. With the what systems? With layering systems. Layering systems. Okay. Yeah. So they're fine, um, but they're trade-offs, right? And so are other coins. They're they're trade-offs, right? Weaker weaker double spend security. Um, so you don't spend as much on them. Um, but anyway, you know what? So what defines what defines a shitcoin? I just, you know, if it, if there if if I if what I decided to use for the very short chapter on what's a shitcoin was um, so first I wrote cryptodynamic principles, uh, which are the three principles that I laid out um, that Satoshi laid out in his paper, and I and I I clarified and explained um, and if a coin you know, if something, I don't even call it a coin, but if something, you know, conforms to those principles, uh, then 
it's a Bitcoin. It may be a shitty Bitcoin, right? It may have used some weak crypto or something, but it, it, it adheres to the principles. Um, whether it's got a big, you know, user you know, or merchant base or, um, you know, high hash rate or market price, whatever, those are all interesting um, things when it comes to how useful it is, but it still follows the principles. If you have something that doesn't follow those principles, but pretends to, tells people that it does, like like a lot of proof of stake coins, they claim to have, you know, significant, better, whatever security than Bitcoin, um, then they're not talking about the threat, which is the state, right? The state gets to, obtains privately, with nobody knowing, right? Control of the coin and start censoring. What can you do? There's nothing you can do. And that makes, so those claims are invalid and it's more about the, the way it, it's presented. If you, if, if you want to do some centralized uh, money system and, uh, you know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Just don't tell everybody it's a Bitcoin. Um, otherwise, you'll end up getting called a shitcoin. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of more centralized financial systems that are perfectly legitimate. Um, uh, they're not frauds. And that, that's true, you know, of a lot of other coins, as long as they don't tell people that this is like, this is more secure than Bitcoin, right? Yeah. So I suppose an example of that would be um, CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, which, which go exactly to what you wish, uh, oh, yeah. what you suggested earlier on, which is like unmitigated, you know, yeah. un unseen levels of, of transparency. Uh, as well as control of the money. Um, right. If something like that, I mean, presumably the reason they want to do that is so they can give the appearance of having the characteristics of Bitcoin and also neutering, you know, <laughs> getting the value proposition of Bitcoin because it doesn't adhere to that security model. So that's clearly a shitcoin, right? Any, any state crypto is a shitcoin because it's not it, the, the very fact that it exists implies that it doesn't adhere to those principles. Um, and as a result, if it implies that it does, then it's a shitcoin. Let's put it in that category. But take another coin that's, I mean, take, take for example, just take take the code from BTC and change change a couple bits in the Genesis block and start over. It's still Bitcoin, right? It's just got a different history. It's on a different, you know, fork or, you know, root. Um, it still follows all the same principles. It might have a small market, but so did Bitcoin. Um, and, and it's very unlikely that something very similar to Bitcoin, some, something very similar to BTC, right, um, is going to create a larger market until um, there's financial pressure to do so. Why wouldn't you just use Bitcoin, right? Network effect is, is, is a real thing. Um, money is a network effect and the more people that accept it, the more useful it is. Um, but Bitcoin also has fees, which are necessary, and the more expensive it gets to use, the less useful it is. Right? There's a downward, there's a downward pressure on, on um, its demand when its demand rises, which is what makes it stable. Um, and at that, at that point, you start to see altcoins popping up that may have very similar characteristics to Bitcoin. They're just smaller because the whole point is they're going to handle smaller transactions. Right, because they're no longer viable on, on Bitcoin. So um, I think I see there's a perfectly reasonable market solution to you know, the question of scalability. It deals with things like sharding. You know, right? You don't have to carry all the data. You just 
atomic swap over to BTC one, two, three, or four, right? With you know declining levels of um, acceptance, or maybe in, increasing levels, but for smaller amounts, right? Um, and that's a perfectly reasonable solution. There's nothing. It's not not shit coins. It just it's just um, a trade-off again, similar to layering trade-offs in many ways, um, and simple, and um, don't have you know the trade-offs are made in a different way. In other words, you don't set up a watchtower to make sure somebody's not robbing you, and then in order to prevent that, have to close out your channel and pay your Bitcoin fee. Right? You're you're you just you just maybe watch for a double spend. That's it. Um, I I suppose also you don't have to set up your own little node, and you know, be online for, for you to receive payment. You know, you no. could just disseminate no. a, an address and get payment. Oh, yeah. But just, I mean, just take BTC and LTC, right? It, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I really just only deal with BTC, but the, the code we have, you know, you can make two configuration or a couple of configuration changes in a config file and fire up the same process, you know, same executable and it'll run Litecoin. It's very, very, very similar, right? Yeah. Uh, and, um, Okay, so take these well-known things that are out there, they exist. I mean, um, what's, you know, what's the problem, right? You want to do small transactions with lower level security. Say, you're, you know, you're buying your coffee. Why are you, you know, why are you so concerned about having this, you know, multi-million dollar level of transaction security? You're not. And, point. Um, and if you can atomically swap between these chains, you can period chains. You can periodically take something out of your vault, which maybe is on BTC, and put it in your leather wallet, which is your LTC, and go out and you know. I don't. I'm not promoting LTC. I'm just an example that everybody knows about, right? I understood. So I, I see that uh, eventually someday, what you might you might anticipate, what I anticipate is that um, you'll see just you know BTC one through n of de of, of declining levels of security um, corresponding to declining uh, sizes of uh, transaction value uh, with atomic swaps between them, people paying a little more money to secure their money um, against double spends um, how, more highly. How would, how would a new sort of like, a, let's, let's say, BTC2 or BTC3, how would it sort of come into evolution? Because there would be a, you know, a transition effect. I mean, like human beings would start getting a little bit grouchy or something like, you know. The well, these, things already, these have already come into evolution, right? LDC is a good example, but there's hundreds of them, right? And so, I don't know. I don't know about hardly any of them, right? I know LDC because we have it in the code base. But um, the way they came into being was through demand. Somebody wanted them. And, um, you know, the, the it, it, if there's demand for... A uh, money like Bitcoin for smaller level transactions. Um, if the demand is sufficient enough, it'll just come into be. And um, the, you know, this becomes this just becomes an engineering issue, right? How do I engineer a wallet that can paper over the distinction between higher and lower levels of security? Yeah. That's like an interesting. I mean, that's fun, right? Let's make one of those. And, um, but they, you know, there has to be sufficient demand. There's, there's, I mean, you know, merchants aren't taking Bitcoin. I mean, some of them are taking, you know, using light, uh, lightning for, for Bitcoin transactions, but there's just not a lot of demand for um, these transactions, especially in the white market where what's the benefit, right? What's the benefit in the white market for transacting in Bitcoin? The whole point is, you know, avoiding, um, state control. So it really is a black market money. And 
you know, when, when state clamps down, the black market gets bigger. So, you know, you may see, you may see that demand creating more transactions in, um, in other chains. And then you might see somebody making wallets that paper over that distinction. So you don't even know the difference. Why, why would it matter to somebody, right? Do I want to pay this fee for high trend, high, you know, high security or this fee for low security? Okay. It's a, it's a slider on my wallet. What do I care? Do I, you know, do I care which chain it's in? No, not if I can spend it with who I want to spend it with. Um, so it's a perfectly rational solution. And if you're somebody that doesn't do any high security transactions, you don't need a, you don't need a node that has, you know, that chain, right? You can, in other words, you can, you're effectively horizontally sharding the history um, in a perfectly yeah. rational way. Um, so I think it's a, you know, it, it's already kind of happened. It's just that we have, an, it's an engineering distinction, right? Like you, you open up, I use edge wallet because I know that, I know, I know uh, Paul Pewey, Airbits, right? And uh, I, I opened it up the other day and I was just scrolling through all these coins, right? And, you know, I'm just like saying, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're halfway there, right? Mm. <laughs> you're halfway there already. People are just doing this, the, the, you know, I, if you, if you go to some of these exchanges or whatever, you know, the, the transactability between the changes is pretty, is pretty transparent. It's not, you know, we're not talking about atomic swaps, but that would be the next logical step is, is to just enable atomic swaps be, between the chains. And now you're just moving money from one level of security to another and, you know, you pay for it, which makes sense. Um, but yeah, you're not, you're not, you're not making the same trade-offs as you make with some of the layering solutions. You're, you know, you don't have to be online enough to watch, you don't have to close out, whatever. It's just very simple. It's just like Bitcoin. Yeah, there are, there are uh, detractions to, to, to doing layering solutions. Actually, uh, this, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you because you seem to cut through the, 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 the you know, the dross very quickly and easily. Um, and you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've already created a, a new privacy-preserving internet protocol um, based on information-centric networking, and I'd like to put something like a layer two on top of it. Um, maybe even do like coin joins or something like that. So, so you know, this this networking protocol allows you to do to do a more effective hiding. Mm. So, like in in my sense, from my perspective, uh, something like a layer two lightning allows you to allows you to do high frequency uh, um, uh, transactions when you need to, and when it's an off time, you can settle it later. You know, when, you, when like in the evening or something, huh? when business closing or something, you can settle it later. What I'm worried now now the main issue I want to discuss with you here is that, well, you have already gone into the sharding of the different blockchains, but um, uh, I, I'm slightly concerned that that a layered technology suddenly disconnects it totally. Do you see what I mean? So that so oh, yeah. that the yeah. concept of settlement, so the concept of settlement becomes like, just like uh, you're just disincentivized well, to actually settle. It's worth it's worth considering that the and I'll use the dollar as an example, but Hong Kong dollars work just fine too. <laughs> um, the 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 current U.S. dollar note versus the, well, the original third Federal Reserve dollar, you know, certificates, that's what the difference is, right? The dollar became decoupled from its settlement mechanism, which was gold or silver, 
right? And that decoupling allowed, therefore, signage. Uh, of course, it happened from the very beginning, but let's pretend it wasn't decoupled until, you know, there was a recoupling back in 1933 and then a formal international decoupling in 1971. But really what was happening is it was all, it was immediately decoupled. Well, if you take something like, like I've had, I've heard people say, well, in lightning, well, eventually everybody will just use lightning and we'll never sell. I'm like, well, then you'll have no security whatsoever. Right. If you if you never settle um, and the ability to settle is what gives you that security. And um, if it becomes too costly to settle, so you never settle, then um, you don't have that anymore. So it has to be it has to remain tied to that settlement mechanism, which means that the fee pressure will always push its way up into those uh, other transactions. Right. The people that have to settle. And you know, open and closed channels that have to pay those fees, so it may it may it may scale it up significantly, but it still exists and um, it still has to be coupled. And yeah, it, that is that is a little concerning to think that people believe that you know, well, just you know, Bitcoin just kind of doesn't need to be there. We'll just use just use Lightning. It's kind of silly. Um, so la layering, you know, has so fundamentally layering is a credit solution. Right. You, you're, you're dealing in credit and then you may be able to you know, have a pretty strong guarantee of being able to settle that credit. But that's what it is. And it's it's very similar. It's just kind of a formal way that's you know, maybe better secured uh, doing offline transactions, say at Coinbase right, or, or Cash App, where there's a lot of supposed transacting going on, but it's all being done off chain. And then you settle and then you pay your fee when you when you close out. Um, so that's, that's what we call credit, right? These are, uh, lightning is money, essentially money certificates, right? Like, like the dollar was the, the, the original, you know, gold backed dollars, a money certificate. Uh, you move it around and you don't have to move the gold around, which saves you a lot of, you know, transportation costs, whatever it may be. Um, but then, and then you settle, you get your gold back. Um, so, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it's an attempt to be a one-to-one -one credit system, uh, for, for Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, that's fine. Money and money and credit are a, a duality, right? There's some people that believe there should be no credit, which is, I find fascinating. Um, with, with, without credit, there's really no reason for the money and, um, there's no production without credit, right? Somebody has to actually invest in production or nothing mm -hmm. gets produced and there's nothing and the money's not worth anything because there's nothing to buy. So, um, those it can't get you anything of use value, so it itself becomes useless. So that's you know the theoretical end game of no credit. Um, and when we talk about when people start talking about fractional reserve, which um, Rothbard was careful not to directly err in man economy in the state, but if you look at what has government done to our money, he's it's so he's so misleading that people come to believe what he's saying. It's like there's some basis to this. But if you go back and remand, he doesn't he doesn't make those mistakes. I think he's smarter than that. Um, but I, I wrote a I wrote a whole topic on this, you know, full called the full reserve fallacy, where like full reserve means no credit, and no credit means no production, and no production means no stuff. So um, you know, you with with a money certificate, you know, one to one, you're you're really it's not it's not credit that results in production because it remains one-to-one. -one. Um, 
it has to be loaned um, over time. But yeah, full reserve is a silly concept. Um, yeah. So a few of my mates, they're, they're dead set. They're dead against Bitcoin. They really dislike it. Um, and, and it's difficult sort of going, you know, getting their reason for it. But essentially it boils down to them um, liking the state. They say, they say the state needs to have nukes. It needs to have an army. It needs to have these sorts of things. Sure. Um, and some of them, some of the saying like, like how, how is science going to get funded otherwise? Because yeah, like and, and, people don't need and, knowledge anymore without the state. <laughs> say again? Things without the state. Anyway, if you, if you come across somebody who doesn't agree with the principle behind it, which is saving people tax money, you know, or at least making tax more visible, then they're going to disagree. Now, this is this is a disagreement with the assumptions, right? You can't argue with that, right? You, you, you can't argue with somebody who says, no, we like it. We, 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 we don't want to resist the state, right? We're not going to accept the axiom of resistance here. We, we, okay, so then, you know, like Mike Hearn, just go work on R3 or something and be a centralized system. That's what he said. And like, we can't, he said, he didn't say you didn't want to. He said, we can't, right? It can't work. So I'm going to go work on something centralized. What, what's the point of this? I had, a, I had a debate with him back, you know, not long before he, he quit working on Bitcoin. Um, I mean, it's getting to the point where you know, people, people don't even know who he is. <laughs> I mean, at least the new people that are coming into Bitcoin don't know. And I'm like, well, this, you know, people, people just don't agree with the, with, the, with, the, with the underlying assumption. And therefore, you will never get, you know, in that case, you'll never get them to really accept the system, um, which is fine. Uh, this is the, one of the great things about Bitcoin. It's not a democracy. No, you don't have to get a majority of people to agree with you so that it'll work. You know, you just have to get enough people to pay for it that it that it can resist. And um, it's an anarchy. Everybody does what they want. They act in their own interests. Um, and if other people don't go along, that's fine. You know, you still have your money. Um, so, yeah. It, I suppose it also in some sense. Those people. Except maybe talk philosophically about you know the, the nature of the state and not not really talk about Bitcoin anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, it would be a, it's it's a completely different conversation. I mean, yeah. when you go to when you go to the state level, you know, like like uh, um, I forgot the name of that. Uh, uh, I forgot the name of that thing. We went into China. We went into uh, America and several research facilities. I mean, massive, just unbelievably massive research facilities, which which cost you know billions of dollars to create mm -hmm. and and i just look at this and i think yeah can you imagine these you know top level crypto sausages i don't think they would ever be able to uh, put money together to create s such things sure um, the, the question the more fundamental question would be why would they why should they <laughs> exactly no exactly but you know so this, the state is fundamentally about making people do things they don't want to do because if they wanted to do them, the market would do it, right? Yeah. And um, taking uh, you know the modern equivalent of I don't know trillions of dollars from people so that we can go to the moon and collect some dust probably wasn't a decision that most people were willing to make back then. So we forced it upon them, and we had this great program which was all you know very inspiring and, and helped us win the you know the uh, the media war against the Russians, but. Um, for a time, yeah. right? So was that money that everybody wanted to spend? Well, when it's all done, it's all been spent and it's all water under the bridge, great. But, you know, um, that money would have been spent on other things that they wanted. 
And looking at a big factory full of scientists, you know, doing something for the state, uh, directed by the state, clearly state money, um, is not necessarily what people want. The, the money's going to get, you know, capital's going to get used in something anyway. It's not, the, the assumption is that, like, this is what people want. You know, so state doesn't fund science, we don't get this. Well, if we don't get this, that means people didn't want it. Right. People wanted something else with their money. Maybe they wanted to eat, not be poor. Right. And, uh, you know, there's there's plenty of people in China that probably would prefer to be doing something else with their with their money than 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 some of the things that they do with it, um, that the state does with it. Tokamak. So, That's the word I'm looking for. It was, we went into a tokamak and it was a fascinating experience. Anyway, oh, continue, please. A, to a, a tokamak reactor. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've been to one of those. There was one, in, I don't know if it's still there, but it was in MIT in the 80s. I went down there. Yeah, um, yeah that was during the Cold War, too. I was like, this is really cool. We got this Russian tech at MIT. <laughs> They're, we're running it off a General Electric flywheel generator that powers, like, you know, Long Island or something. <laughs> and they got it there. Um, very, very interesting. Yeah, but, um, you know, they've been spending a lot of money on that for, for a long time. And, you know... Maybe people want to use their money for something else. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the best way to play the game is to is to is to use Bitcoin as an inflation hedge, or just to you know like like to, to, to opt out of the system and earn. You know, if you if you want to participate in cool scientific experiments, then that's where you you know you earn your money there. You do your experience there, and then opt out of the system. Yeah, I mean, it's not the world was bereft of scientific discovery before the state decided that it would be in its benefit to tax people to pay for it. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's, it's, you know, every yeah. Amir, you know, Amir Taki, hmm. he's, he's, I don't, he's, he's one of the early uh, Bitcoiners. Yeah. He founded LeBitcoin, which is the project that I work on right. and uh, he's still around. He's doing stuff. And, um, Oh, geez, I lost my train of thought. Uh, Oh, yeah. He made this funny comment. He came, you know, he's, he's a Brit and he came to the States, I think, for the first time. And I met him on that trip down at Cody Wilson's place in Austin. He was still living on, on the college campus after after um, I guess he was done with college. He was a law student there. And uh, uh, so it was Cody, and me and, and Amir and Peter Todd and uh, Andy Greenberg, who writes for Wired, he used to write for uh, Forbes or something. Um, and a few other people, uh, Patrick Straitman, who was with Amir when they started the Bitcoin, and, and he was one of the largest miners. I think he works for Blockstream now. Um, so we had a, we had a grand old time there, and I I I uh, I'd already met Amir. I had gone out to Spain, uh, meet him when I first started on the project, but he wanted to introduce me to some of these people. I was still kind of new, uh, so we had this great time. And he and he, but he was fascinated by some of the things about the states. And one of the things that happened to him. Um, in New York was, so he'd come through, come through Manhattan and he uh, was riding the subways and he, I don't know, he jumped a turnstile or something. <laughs> he, got, he got put in subway jail um, by transit cops in New York. <laughs> and they, they were tough, you know, and uh, that was some other issues. I don't know, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's not true, but it was, it was a story I heard. Um, and one of the things he commented on was, was the roads. And he's like, you know, when you're, libertarian anarchist types, you know, in the US, it always comes back to the roads. Like who's gonna build the roads, right? 
And, you know, how would we possibly have roads if we didn't have the state, right? Oh, okay, we, 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 gotta, we gotta go to the moon because we need roads. So his observation was like, we don't use that example in England. And I always wondered why you guys were always talking about the roads, but now I get it. Look at these roads, they're amazing. <laughs> and, and he said, we talk about healthcare, right? And this was, I think this, you know, this was, this was back a few years. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I know the NHS in, in the UK is always the, like the number one political issue. Yes. It's so bad. And some people think it's great, but it's actually one of the lowest rated healthcare systems in the world. And for a number of categories and reasons, and there, there was always, you know, never enough money, whatever. It's always about this and the same thing in the roads in the, in the U S you know, we need infrastructure projects, we got to fix our roads and bridges, but, and he's like, you know, in England, we don't, we don't know how we could possibly get healthcare without the state. And it was an interesting observation because, you know, every, every, every little region has their, their pet thing that the state, that it just couldn't exist without the state, but they're not all the same thing, <laughs> right? And England has this long tradition that predates state road involvement, um, which is very fascinating, right? Roads evolved before the state got involved pretty extensively. I mean, this is true pretty much everywhere, but it's a fairly modern, you know, not too long back history of it. And then the state eventually, see, you know, the, the Lords and whatever seized the roads um, mm. with the pre and then they taxed people to pay for the roads. And then they kept the tax money and the roads went to shit um, because they were really well maintained by merchants and farmers and stuff who needed to trade across these roads, right? And paid people for rights of way and maintain them and or communities maintain them for self-interest or whatever and the state steps in the roads all go to shit and uh and so you know they had a different they have a, you know in the u.s we had this long tradition of private medicine right and then yeah. the state steps in and it all starts going to shit and we're surprised and now it's you know it's a, become a big issue here too but somehow we managed to go quite a long time without you know the state trying controlling and we still have you know some semblance some small corners of free market stuff left in healthcare. But then, you know, I had to take a couple trips down to Singapore for, you know, with, with, uh, with my son um, for medical stuff. Uh, and uh, because they have, um, they have kind of two medical, you know, medical markets. One is largely a free market, um, probably the one of the freest in the world. And the other is a state run system. And uh, they're, they're kind of separate, right? So, you can't afford to go to the market system. You just go over here, right? But the but the market system, is, you know, it's not subsidized as far as I know, and it's very lightly controlled. And uh, it's one of the interesting things is, is you know you go to a lot of countries. If you go to England and say I'm I'm here I'm here to use some of your healthcare, right? They'll practically they'll probably shoot you at the airport. Um, and I, I show up I show up in Singapore, and you know this thing, airport is interesting because my my middle name is Krishna, and uh, Singapore is half like, I mean, it's like a third Indian, Chinese and European descent, right? So the woman working the, at the, at the um, immigration was Indian and she looked at my passport and she looked at me, she was like, Krishna, how'd you get that name? Right? That was awesome. And uh, then she says, what are you, what are you here for? I'm like, medical tourism. She's like, oh, awesome. you know, all right. come use some of our medical care. Because believe it or not, you, you pay them for it and they therefore want more customers and therefore when they get more customers they don't have a shortage they hire more doctors and they build more buildings right so we went in and it was funny my son initially called them and uh he said he called this hot as raffles hospital singapore and he, and he said i'd like to make an appointment with this you know somebody in this department and they said 
no, they, they said, he said, I'd like to see somebody in this department. And they said, okay. And he said, can I make an appointment? They said, well, you don't need an appointment. Just, just show up. And he said, any, any times? Yeah, there's always somebody here. And so we did, we just showed up and saw the heads of five departments. Uh, most of them were Western trained um, uh, doctors who had gone there to practice this type of medicine. Um, you know, people from all around the world. Excellent, actually. And before we went into every office, we got a bill. We got every single thing was itemized, everything, you know, whatever it was, little details, it was all itemized. Even if they have a Band-Aid, it was on there, right? And ran a credit card to the machine, you know, went on the way out. So we got a bill, paid it, and went to the next one. And everybody had a little credit card machine at the front desk. And it was really simple and very cheap. <laughs> and uh, we had to do an MRI. And, you know, in the States, you can, you can wait weeks or months to get scheduled into one of those things. And they'll, I remember I had a, I had a sports injury and I had to, you know, I had to go through like two months of therapy, physical therapy before they would let me go get an MRI. And then afterwards the, the surgeon said, yeah, you can't fix that with therapy. <laughs> and I was like, I know, I know, but they, they're preserving this scarce resource instead of just buying another one. Right. Yeah. And we get there and we, you know, they're like, yeah, just go down the hall. It's right there. Just, you know, get your MRI. And, you know, so anyway, that's, that's the kind of experience with the roads, you know, healthcare, et cetera, is that when the state takes it over, it becomes awful. And then people can't think they can't live without the state. Um, they, they lose a, you know, collective memory of, of having done these things or the possibility of doing these things as a market. But fundamentally, the market produces everything. Even if it's state run, the market's producing everything. It's just being run through this bureaucracy. Hmm. So, Admittedly, I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate there. Um, asking me that sort of question. Um, I, you know, I have one. Say? Sure, you get me going. No, no, that's intentional. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I have a very similar experience out here in Hong Kong. I mean, with a medical system out here, it's, 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 it's top quality. It's top quality. I mean, like, just even on, on, even on, even if I were to use the state level stuff, you know, I, I broke my, my, my clavicle, um, you know, I had a kidney stone. Uh, it, dude, it cost me like 200 Hong Kong dollars. And that was, and it was public service. I was checked into this thing and, and, uh, you know, a couple of days checked out again, paid 200 bucks and then that's it. It was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, mark, market supply things are as cheap as they can be made. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. yeah, no, admittedly, I mean, this is the government is paying for that one, but well, I mean, like if, if I wanted to go get like a, a, a MRI or, or th there is also an, a whole private, um, Yep. section of of medical systems out here it's it's equally good if not better yeah. so you run into problems when the, when the when the private market has to compete with the state now too right state generally runs private market out of business because they can operate at a loss so competition is what controls price and yeah. um you know in in a, in a competitive market um you get the lowest price you can get that's inherent in free markets is, you know, as long as competition is allowed, you will get, you will get the lowest price possible. Yeah. And, you know, when you start restricting, like in the U S um, there's a, there's a lot, a number of States and California has this, I think we have it here in Washington, where if you want to build a hospital, you have to get all the other hospitals in the region to sign off on it. In other words, they can just prevent their own competition. So it's extremely right. competitive you know, state controlled system, right? That's a law. That's not the market saying we don't want a new hospital. That's the state saying we're going to protect 
these hospitals so they can charge higher prices and not and that's why they don't want competition because they will have to reduce their prices yeah um, and therefore you know when you have price controls you get shortages um and you end up then with tax subsidies which <laughs> increases the price but it's largely paid by the taxpayer but if you know now if you don't want to participate in that system you're paying a much higher price because yeah. everybody else is subsidized so um you get these huge market distortions and that's that's what we've seen over the u.s and people say we have a free market up here but it's not even close anymore. why do you choose to live in the states then i mean given that you've seen so much of the world um I, yeah it's uh there's a number of reasons and one is i was born here i have friends and family here um and another reason is it just feels like home right um i i I've been to 81 countries and I've looked for places to live, found a couple that I thought were nice and then looked at their tax structures and went, holy shit. Not only, so I'm either going to, I mean, I'm going to pay my U.S. taxes wherever I am anyway. Right? Uh, good point. Yeah. And, you know, if they have a tax agreement, I'll only pay the additional amount. Um, but, you know, wealth taxes in Spain and, you know, uh, all, all kinds of, it's just insane. I mean, U.S. is got their, sure, sure has their taxes, but that's one of the reasons why it's, you know, the most productive market in the world is because it's just relatively low taxes compared to the rest of the world. So, uh, you know, you give up your citizenship and go to a higher tax place, right? There's no, no benefit for that. It's a good passport, right? Um, to have living somewhere else as an expat. It's definitely a, it's definitely a possibility for me. Uh, it, uh, this was kind of the year where that was an opportunity for me and and uh, the Rona made it very difficult. I was actually looking at a house and looking at getting a house in um, Costa Blanca in Spain and uh, couldn't go there. So <laughs> mm, yeah. I went to Mexico for a month and I'm like, ah, it's not much different down there than it is up here. <laughs> you know, I, can get, I can get good Mexican food here. You yeah, know, yeah. it's my Spanish. Um, yeah, yeah. I can go there whenever I want. It's not like, I don't know. Yeah. Why do you, why do you Ron, say? Why do you live in Hong Kong? Well, I was traveling the world when I was young, about well, younger, when I was about 23, 24. Um, I'd done Europe, um, and then I wanted to go over to Asia because I wanted to learn Chinese. And uh, I spent time in Taiwan, and, and Taiwan's great. I really enjoyed it. But I had to, I had to come through Hong Kong for... Um, uh, travel visas so every three months or three months or six months i'd have to get a a, a visa and every time i came through hong kong I, mean, I i remember first time i came into hong kong my jaw dropped as a south african um you know <laughs> we have these clear open uh, skies with with almost very very few uh skyscrapers so coming into hong kong was this surreal experience it felt like coming into blade runner movie um, yeah and and I loved it every time I came here. I, I couldn't wait to come back to Hong Kong. So, you know, eventually it reached the point, like whenever I was flying in into Hong Kong, it felt like I was coming home. So then I was like, okay, I, 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 need, to, I need to make Hong Kong yeah. my home. This, this is the place to be. It's so efficient. Everything is just so efficient from the transportation system to the internet. And, and one of the main reasons of coming out here was, was because internet was just so good compared to South Africa, which is it's just a monopoly run, just trash shit. shit. So I, I love Hong Kong. I mean, I, I haven't, I almost went um, 
it was either right before or right after my conference and um, things were getting hard because of the Rona and then the, and there was some troubles there in Hong Kong and uh, my business contact there didn't want me to come, I think. And uh, so I, I, didn't, I didn't go, but I'm wondering like, what's it like now? Uh, Hong Kong's, I mean, like a lot of the protests have all, all settled down. I mean, I, I, things from a day-to-day -day living haven't changed that much. Um, there's, an, there's a visceral understanding that, that uh, the CCP is now in play. And, you know, you actually can lead a very good uh, free lifestyle. Uh, you've been to China. You should know, like, there's a lot of freedom out there. But just don't cross the CCP. Yeah, yeah, that's that's just so, don't cross the that's the, goal, that's the golden rule in any kind of strong state is state comes first and everything. You know, a lot of times, like in you're right, in like in in China, in you know mainland China, they the uh, there's a degree of freedom that people have that people in the West don't really understand um, because no conception of laws law is more far more arbitrary there than than in the West. And as a result, people don't even know what's legal half the time. They just know what people get away with and they do it. Yeah. And they, you know, and a lot of times that's, that's just how it is, right? You, you just do what you can. And um, so, yeah, it's a very, very dynamic um, yeah. bustling, you know, but there's also this overarching level of oppression, which reaches out into the rest of the country. Most Westerners don't see beyond the economic zones. And um, I, I took a train from, from you know, bullet train from Shanghai to Beijing, and went through town after town. That identical concrete, you know, block things is sticking out of some fields somewhere. And one of them we stopped at. We had to stop, and the bullet on the bullet train. We stopped for like an hour or two, and just no explanation of why or anything. We're just on this train stop in the middle of nowhere, like rice fields or something. And then all of a sudden, another train pulled up next to us, and some Transfer. party dignitary got on with like a, a general carrying a suitcase and standing at the front of the train on the on the you know the train stations at salute till that train pulled away, and then we could go. <laughs> right, we couldn't slow down this this uh, this thing that was going on. Um, but it was I just remember looking at all these towns out there, and, and then my son went uh, right when he finished high school. He went out to central China, did some traveling, got a friend lived out there and yeah he, he uh I, I didn't personally do a lot of traveling outside the economic zones but um been there a few times and i like it you know china's really interesting great people and everything but it's it's two different countries and i think people don't like my generation i, I remember watching tiananmen on television when it was happening and, and that's kind of the impression that people had in the west there was very little, little information and and uh, my son took a one of the courses he took was on this history of this area and, and since then it's actually there's been quite a bit more learned about what actually happened and um i just didn't even know but china was in full-on rebellion you know from what, I, from what i understand at least along the coast and what are now the economic zones um and during this time period also is when you were seeing the soviet union start to fall apart and i you know, presumption is that the party decided they needed to loosen up some in these areas where people had rebelled. Um, the one that was caught on camera and focused on was in, in Beijing, in Tiananmen, but but um, it happened in a number of places. And, and actually Beijing is not, I, I don't think, an economic zone. It just has a special status. But the other the other places, Shanghai and 
few of those cities, mostly along the coast, are they have different laws, right? And everybody else in the country is, you know, old school, right? Uh, and that's what he observed, you know, as a as a visitor, you get you have to go check in at the police station every time you go to to get you know to let them know you're there. In the big cities, you don't notice it because the hotels do it for you. They, they all all accurate. Yeah, all accurate. Yeah, so it's um, I don't know. I forget I forget what the subject was. So you know, just just the yeah the, the freedom that people have, right? So even though it can be very oppressive in a, in a lot of ways, um, the day to day life can be even more liberal than than we see in the West because people just don't they just ignore don't understand the laws and they just do what they do. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of at the point now where where I would be more happy with this government. Then, I mean, like, for example, Hong Kongers now, um, they were always west facing, um, very rarely looking, looking back to China. And yeah, and and as a result, you know, they uh, Hong Kongers knew more about what was going on in the west than what they knew was going on in China. Um, so again, just as you had uh, um, understandings about uh, Tiananmen Square and and you know. Not not knowledgeable about just how much progress China has actually made. Hong Kongers were in a similar similar sort of position, maybe not to the same degree because there's always been an, um, um, mediation between the West and China, uh, at least on products and building products, that sort of thing. Um, but I, I I would be I would prefer the the government out here than a Western government. Yeah, um, you, you know, know, there's certainly there's certainly trade-offs. I guess it depends on what you're, you know, if you're running a bookstore, you, you might feel differently. Again, just don't cross the CCP. I don't know, don't I don't know how my 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 writing and my speaking. I, I when I spoke in Beijing, I was I was careful to use the U.S. government as the example. Uh, oh yeah, I think on advice, very sensible counsel. <laughs> That's a very sensible thing to do, um, but I, I think I think you know that Bitcoin is going to rip through. Well, uh, I'm, I'm kind of you know we might be prophesizing things here, which which you know we don't do this during this particular conversation because I know how you're so against it. Um, but yeah, I think I think Bitcoin is going to be ripping through the treasuries, the you know the treasury balance balance well, balance sheets of of everybody, governments, uh, main main actors and families and individuals. Uh, and I think I think it's going to bring a lot of honesty to to to. I mean, that's really the key observation. Uh, I make that some somewhere in the book that Bitcoin might not even reduce tax, right? I mean, if you can't tax for the money and you still want the same amount of money, you just go to people's houses with your guns and take it, like the good old days, right? Um, not that there wasn't inflation in the good old days, but um, it not it's not necessarily going to reduce overall tax. It gives individuals a you know a way to opt out of some portion of it, but it may be recaptured somewhere else. But the point is that it has the opportunity to make tax much more transparent, and that's uh, sounds like what you were referring to, right? And um, if if people got a bill every year for the amount of tax that is taken through inflation, you know they might actually care some more. Um, they don't, people in the West don't even really understand, a vast majority of people don't, they have no inkling of how money is a tax system. And it's interesting if you go to other parts of the world where they've had, you know, high or even hyperinflation, they understand it very well. I, I, I spent yeah. some time in Zimbabwe, which is a great place you to go if you want to learn about money. Um, 
you know, they, they called the, they called the last Zimbabwe dollar that failed. They called it the fourth. That was the name of it. You can go to the Wikipedia. It's called the fourth. It's the fourth dollar under one administration under Mugabe, right? Uh, failed four currencies. Uh, wow. And, and while I was there, I had already spent, you know, I, I just, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't, Follow news or but every once in a while something catches my eye, and I read this article about what was happening a couple of years earlier after the fourth. And uh, so I had some background on it, and I went there and I, I, I talked to my driver. It took me around. I was trying to get to an ATM, just I was really just trying to get some cash. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he's like, you know, they're all empty. It was it was. Um, so what 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 I had read about, I was seeing the the next phase of it happening. It was really fascinating. Um, what happened when the fourth failed and probably in precursors is that, is that, um, people just, you know, it was, it was so hyperinflated. They got the hundred trillion dollar notes with timestamps on them. They expired. <laughs> yeah. hundred trillion, hundred trillion. I, I bought some of these, you know, I paid 20 bucks for a hundred trillion dollar note. Um, so they <laughs> the timestamp, they still have value. <laughs> and I bet that 20 bucks is more than it was worth when it failed. Um, so they've gone up in value. Um, <laughs> because they're becoming more scarce. But uh, anyway, I, I bought the whole, I bought a whole series, right? Now I, I have, I have Italian Lira from back when they used it. You know, I have all these different monies and stuff. It's not much of a you know thing of mine, but I thought Zimbabwe was special. So I got that. And I got those little, I got those little animals in the window you see back there at the same yeah. mark. I got Elephants. the Zimbabwe dollars. That's the big five. Um, and so what had happened is people stopped using the Zimbabwe dollar and they started using dollars, rand and euro. And um, the government had to use it too, because you know, that's, they couldn't spend their own money. It was worthless and nobody would take it. And so they, they had, they had re, you know, regressed to um, or progressed to, to a foreign currency standard, uh, de facto standard. And then eventually what happened is people started putting their money into their banks. And this is another, you know, kind of pet peeve of mine. People say people don't have access to banking in all these corners of the world. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I've been to like a dozen countries in Africa, driving in the Southern United South Africa, um, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia, whatever, up North too. And everywhere I went, there's banks everywhere, right? And people can use the banks. And they're actually nice, new, modern, clean, you know, the ATMs, parking lots, whatever, even in small dirt towns. It's not a lack of banking access. People don't want to use the banks because they get robbed. And this is what was happening in Zimbabwe. And somebody, I don't know, it's a journalist, somebody had, had written an article about it. And so people put all their money, into the, you know, they're putting their, their currency, their foreign currency into the banks um, because they and eventually they get to the point where they have some savings and they want to be able to use credit cards. And they want... To be able to, you know, maybe ATMs, credit cards, but they want to be able to buy stuff online on Amazon, but they want to do, you know, international commerce. They need to, and they can't because the banks don't have agreements with mm. these other foreign banks. So eventually they progress to the point where they, the Zimbabwean banks set up accounts in European banks that were dollar, euro, and rand accounts, um, you know, maybe, maybe in South Africa for rand, but they were setting up, they set up accounts and so that they could, you know, transfer money into these accounts and therefore have access to the credit card network and the, and the financial clearing network, et cetera. So now people have their money in their banks and they can use their credit cards and everything's good. Everything, everything's working normally, free market, you know, aside from the fact you're using some other government's currency. And then, so what does Mugabe do? 
he was brilliant. He he went to his own banks, which operate, you know, in his under his control, and he said, I would like to take control of those European, you know, bank accounts, and I will give you money when you ask for it. So the, you know, I don't know what they call it in Zimbabwe, the Federal Reserve of Zimbabwe inserts itself between the local banks and the foreign banks. And all the money is in the foreign banks so that, you know, so people can track that or at least a, a large portion of it. And so, um, so of course, the money starts disappearing, right? He's spending it, you know, paying the military, you know, buying a, buying a new fancy shirt with his face printed on it or something. And, um, oh, uh, also, he's got he's got, he, the family has got one of the, and uh, I think uh, in one of the really expensive parts of Hong Kong, they have got an entire like a building. And how do they pay for that? They paid for that by you know probably a lot of it came from this money that was saved up from tourists and other trade in Zimbabwe that went into these European banks, and then he just came in and just did a man in the middle attack, right? Like I'll I'll just insert myself between these. And so at that point, things were still working. And this is when I read about it. Like, I'm like, I told my son, you know, he's very interested in these things. He was, he was young, but this is before we did the trip out there, which he planned. And I said, let's, you know, we'll go see some of this on the street, you know? And, uh, and so what had happened by the time we got there, maybe a year or two later, was, um, there, was a, there was a shortage of dollars. <laughs> there was a shortage of Rand dollars and euros. So somehow they couldn't get it into the country, right? They just, I don't know, there was a, there was a shortage. <laughs> and this is how the government was portraying it. Like, you know, speculators are buying them up or something, there's a shortage. Well, what really happened is they spent it all and, yeah. and therefore they couldn't get any because they didn't have any, right? And so the banks, when they wanted to let people take some of their money or spend it, they couldn't. And so, uh, uh, this, the banks and then eventually the state imposed, um, you know, withdrawal limits. And I think, I think they were down to like 20 bucks a day was your maximum withdrawal. So people are, you know, they're making real salaries or doing business, right? Running this tourist business, whatever. And they, and they're, I'm like, well, why, why would you keep putting your money in the banks in the first place? So I, so we go, we go around to the ATMs. Well, even though it was like a $20 withdrawal limit, which by the way, I saw in Greece too, when they had their currency crisis you know, a few years back. The haircut. Uh, yeah. I, like the ATMs were all, they all had signs on them. You couldn't get money. That was one of my, the credit card. That was one of my aha moments for Bitcoin. It was WikiLeaks and, and Cyprus. Yeah. Those two things. Well, not this, I'm not talking about Cyprus. I'm talking about the, uh, uh, Greece where they had the, um, they were defaulting on their debt and, uh, uh yeah. They were talking about leaving the euro and eventually, I don't know, the Germans decided to bail them out again, right? That's the one. Okay. Yeah. So they stayed yeah. with the euro. But um, at the time, we had come from Turkey and, um, sorry, my camera's going a little crazy because of the contrast. Um, at, at the time, the, um, uh, you know, they were, so this is what happened in Zimbabwe. We, the, so this is driver, we were staying in a, like a, a, a wildlife camp. And the driver had been taking us around, so we uh, I asked him to take take us into Vic Falls and uh, uh, just see if we can find an ATM. And he, he grew up there, so he knew he knew people, and he knew like the guards working. There was always a guard standing by the ATMs, and he would just like he would look at him. You know, the guy would see me and like you know look walking towards the ATM. The guy would just shake his head, and he'd be like, "No." This <laughs> and so they were all empty. We, I think we went to like six ATMs. They were all empty, and there was you know. There was just no, there was, the, the banks didn't have the money, right? They couldn't give it out. 
And there were, so we went to a bank the next day. We eventually ended up taking a, uh, taking a ride over the bridge to Zambia and we got some Zambia bucks, um, which were easy to get. And uh, just, just to have them and get the, get into another country and have the experience. But uh, that day we went to one of the local banks. There was two or three on the street next to each other in Big Falls. And there was a line of people out front. There were women, you know, sitting on the lawn, having picnics with their kids while my husband, you know, typically is waiting in line. And they're just waiting. The line's not moving, right? And, and I, I asked the guy, so what's going on over here? He's like, oh, people are trying to get their money out. They wait all day and maybe they'll get their 20 bucks. <laughs> and uh, so we went into one of these banks and we didn't have to wait in line because we weren't trying to get money out. And they had just started a new currency, but they didn't call it the Zimbabwe dollar this time. They called it the bond note. And they had so this is number five. Yeah, this is the fifth, I guess. Um, they had they had posters up um, highlighting the details of the money and how the, the advantage of this money is it had all these security features. You know, it was kind of plasticky, unlike you know the old ones are like. U.S. dollars are kind of paper, but these kind of they have all these security features, and they had this like diagram with all the lines and arrows pointing all these features out, and you know, and and they were like, and they were selling bond notes for one dollar, one dollar, one bond note. It was a one to one, and you get you know. So we went in there and gave them five bucks. We got, I think it was you know five bond notes, <laughs> and they were another scammy ICO. Yeah, they were very happy to give it to us. Um, I I was curious what would happen if we went back the next day and tried to buy dollars with the bond note, you know. Um, but anyway, I don't know. My, my son has these tucked away somewhere. But so we're talking to the driver. And this goes back to my point about people understand how this stuff works, right? We go back and talk to the driver. And um, I, I said, so what's going to happen over time with these bond notes? And he did this thing with his hands where he went like this. <laughs> he just, you know, here they're now one to one, right? Dollar, one bond note. But he, he didn't even have to say anything. He just went, you know, they're going to decouple and they're going to flake the crap out of it and it's going to happen again. But so people could no longer get their, get their, I don't think you could buy dollars with the bond notes, but you could buy bond notes with the dollars. And if you had a dollar account, you know, Euro, Ram, whatever, in one of these banks, I'm, presumably they started giving you bond notes for your what were your dollars, right? So they restarted this. Sorry, my camera is just not having a good time with the with the contrast they, they started uh they, they 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 rebooted this other currency and uh last i checked they were already you know fully decoupled so you know they were they were but i don't i haven't i haven't really <laughs> looked in a while but it was fascinating um and then so this guy this driver he was um he ended up taking me to his his property he had a little piece of property outside of town and, and it was a house he was building it was all in different stages of construction. And I thought it was fascinating. He had one room that was just filled with the, like the highest end electronics equipment. And I was like, what's, you know, the, the disparity between this one outbuilding and the rest of the place, which didn't even have a roof on it or anything yet, was, was stark. And I'm like, what's up with this room? He's like, well, I got a teenager, you know. I, <laughs> unless, I, unless I have this big stereo with these huge speakers and everything. Anyway. Um, so there was a lot of a lot of interesting contest. And his wife showed up. She spoke like six languages. She was working, you know. So he's he's working driving, and he's he's saving up his money to uh, become a butcher, and he's got he's got like I don't know five or ten cows you know, fenced in in the area. But he's got a lot of land, and he's gonna he's gonna be his own ranch. Sorry, it's not. Yeah. He's gonna have his own ranch and 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 slaughter cows and, and run a butchery shop. And I said, okay, so 
first of all, why do people put money in the banks? When they when I give you dollars for driving me around here, you're going to put it in the bank. He said, well, it's the law. Every All the money you make has to go into the bank. Direct deposit yeah. is required for all payroll. And, you know, I'm sure tips, you know, maybe don't all make it into the, into the and cash payments. But uh, so it's the law. I said, so what happens when you open up your butcher shop and somebody pays you in cash? Do you put it in the bank? It's not direct deposit. He says, oh, they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll come audit me and they'll make sure that my money is going into the bank. So it's not a lack of banking services. It's people don't. It's, it's so bad that they have to have a law that says you must put your money in the bank so we can steal it. And when people start, you know, working on these projects to, you know, give banking services to bank the unbanked, right? Unbanked. I, I just roll my eyes. I'm like, you don't understand the problem here, right? Save um, Africa, Jesus. Fuck. Yeah, yeah. The, the the problem is the banks rob you because they're arms of the state. Um, no. Banks don't want to do this. They don't want to keep robbing their customers, and you know, it's not good business. Um, it's they were doing fine before you know he stepped in and did this. So they understand how the money works. They understand that it's a tax system. Uh, they do their best to avoid it. Bitcoin may be able to help people avoid it, you know, uh, and that's great. In the West, people don't understand how the money system works. And it's generally because, you know, governments have had some awareness of, you know, the consequences of going too far. Where we are right now, my, you know, who knows? We've entered new territory um, in, in most of the West. So we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, what with the, okay, so like in one of the interviews you had, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the interviews you had recently, um, okay, before we go into that, earlier on you mentioned Bit Bitcoin is a fiat. I'm going to try to fix this contrast by turning off the uh, screen behind me. Uh-huh. Moving the camera over a little bit. Yeah. Oh, maybe uh, let me turn some light. I think it's the low light. Yeah, light. yeah. At least I can see your view now. Yeah, you see the lake? What um, a lovely view, it, hey? That's the sunset. It would have been usually a beautiful sunset. That's, that's uh, let me see. So that's Seattle. That, those buildings right there, that's downtown Seattle. Ah. And that's directly, eh, it's a little bit southwest. So it's right where the sun sets. Okay. Um, it's I great. Think it's some pictures of Vietnam there that I picked up in Hoi An. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> African, my African animals there on the windowsill. Those pictures look very familiar. We could well have walked past similar. I mean, they're, they're everywhere, really. It's such a, they get such a good feeling. They're so light. and uh, They do, yeah. Uh, yeah, Hoi An's yeah, a great feeling. On a river in central Vietnam. So the U.S. government, okay, uh, oh yeah, you mentioned earlier on that Bitcoin is a fiat. Do you want to go into that? Well, a fiat is not state money. A fiat is money without use value. In other words, it's a pure money. Um, gold has use value. You can use it for other things, right? Dollars have use value. You can roll them up and snort coke with them. You, know, I don't, you, can, you can use them for toilet paper or wallpaper. So, you know, Bitcoin has use value. You can use it for timestamping. But we consider these marginal use values. So there's no pure fiat, right? There, I don't know of any money that doesn't have some use value. But um, we consider the dollar, the, the, you know, it's, it's by, by far its primary use is just as a money and Bitcoin as well. Um, 
gold, the, you know, the majority of gold is, is that's mined every year is and more than 50% goes into jewelry. And, you know, there's all kinds of industrial uses, whatever. So it has use value. If it wasn't used as a money or, you know, a certain type of money, it's, it'd still be usable. So fiat just means no use value. Um, right there on the Wikipedia page, straightforward, right? So Bitcoin is a fiat. Um, so, but it's important to like, you know, people get emotional about fiat, you know, fiat's government money. Like, no, that's, it's, government money is not even in the definition. It's not even in the description. It's, you know, a lot of government monies are, are fiat money. But, um, um, so it's important to be rational about these things, right? Um, because, you know, a fiat money is not a bad money. What makes the, what makes government or state money? What makes it a bad money? The fact that it's monopoly produced, right? If you, if you can prevent everybody else from making dollars, you can you can make them and spend them at you know circulating value. We make them you know the, the U.S. dollar is made for like five cents, and I think a hundred dollar bill is made for like twenty cents. So um, the difference is profit, which means tax, right? It's the, it's the reduction of value. But, but if everybody could make, if everybody was legal, I mean, people do, right? I'm sure like, you know, the North Korean government probably makes dollars. Um, so people do, but people, you know, people illegally compete with all kinds of state controlled monopolies. Um, so, um, but they keep it under control to the point where they can extract a premium. So it's the monopoly production. If everybody was able to make their own dollars and they were just as good, they looked exactly like dollars, right? What would be wrong with that? It wouldn't be right? The You'd have to carry an awful lot of dollars around. But, but once it got to the point where the cost of producing, once the price of it dropped to, you know, it would continue to drop as people were making them. But then at some point, there's no profit in making them because the cost of making them becomes the, 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 the value of them. That's, that's what happens with all products, right? And I... When I reasoned this out, which wasn't too hard, I decided to take a look at some currencies that have been demonetized. Um, I, I looked at, I think I looked at Vietnam at first because I was I was traveling there, and the, there there are no coins in Vietnam. The problem with coins is, you know, um, they it, it's like a bimetallic standard, right? The, the the cost of producing the coin deviates from the cost of producing the paper. And therefore, you have to withdraw the coins from circulation, but people don't give them to you because they're worth, you know, more than they paid for them, right? You know, silver dollars in the U.S., who's going to trade them in for, you know, two for a paper dollar, the old, the old actual silver ones? So people would collect them. Stepfather had a drawer full of them. So, so they get rid of the coins. Um, that's kind of a uh, side story, you know, when you talk about coins. But when you talk about the paper, so they only have paper. And the smallest node, I think, is a thousand dong. So what happened to the one dong? Right? They didn't start at a thousand; they're gone. And uh, you look at the thousand dong node, and it's it's flimsy, right? It looks like it almost looks like actual monopoly game money, and not not very expensive to produce. So you, know, you look at the purchasing power, the exchange rate between the, the thousand dong and the dollar, and I think it's it's like five cents, right? And I'm like, okay, so if the U.S. dollar costs about five cents to make. This thing doesn't cost five cents to make, right? It's probably a, a couple of cents. So I'm like, give it a couple more years, right? The dong will be gone, because now the the profit on the profit on a thousand dong note for the state is what, um, you know, hundred percent. Cost two cents, you sell it for four cents or five cents. 
that's not bad. It's still still worth it, right? But eventually it won't be worth it and it'll just cease to be produced. And it's that production, which is where the tax comes from. So money gets, you know, you know money becomes demonetized over time. Um, with coins, you have to start producing them. In the US, coins are produced at face value. The, the Fed pays um, the treasury face value for the coins, 25 cents for a quarter. Um, it pays five cents for a dollar. So there's no profit in the coins. Um, and as they become more expensive to make, right? If they became 50 cents to make a quarter, right? You got a problem. And so you're losing money. So you, you reduce the quality of the metal. And that's, you know, we see our pennies have been shrinking for years, right? They're the lightweight, I don't even know what they're made of anymore, but they're not copper. Um, so, so eventually the coins, you know, are, you can't really make a physical coin I and mean, you make them out of wood or, you know, wooden, my, my grandfather used to joke about wooden, don't take any wooden nickels, you know, <laughs> during the depression. I'm like, a wooden nickel is probably worth more than five cents now. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, so so that point at which, so so imagine if you go back to this, the original story, sorry, I digress, but um, if everybody, if there was no monopoly protection and everybody just validated the dollar, you look at it, it's got certain criteria, you got a machine says, yep, that's a real dollar. And anybody can make them as long as they validate. And they cost, you know, somewhere five, 10 cents to make. People just start making them and they're making them and they're making them. And then, then there's enough of them out there that, it's, you know, they're not going to make them anymore until enough get destroyed that it becomes worth making a few more. And they just kind of maintains a steady state of that'd be worth about five cents. Okay. So you got to carry, you know, one paper dollar around for every nickel you want to spend. Yeah. It's not great, but it's what the Vietnamese do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and state money. So it's, it, it is how it would work. Right. And it's the monopoly protection that prevents people from competing to increase the supply, to bring the price down, which is what happens in all markets. So it's not the fiat nature of it. It's not the fact that it has no use value. It's the fact that it's monopoly produced. It's produced under monopoly protection. And therefore, production of it creates signage revenue until that production has gotten to the point where it costs more to produce than the thing can, can yield by spending it. And so they stop producing it and they remonetize, they monetize something else and they keep going until they get to a hundred trillion. And they, you know, maybe they chop off some zeros, they renumerate it or, um, or they just cancel it and start over at one, which happens over and over again. So this really obvious cycle with simple economics, but it has nothing to do with the fact that it's fiat, it's monopoly control. So I call it lowercase m monopoly money. And so people don't misunderstand me. I usually just say state money. So Bitcoin is produced by a free market. Anybody can go out and make Bitcoin. And it's produced at the cost of producing it. So it'd be like producing a dollar at five cents, you know, at current five cents price, right? So is there any inflation in that? No, it's not inflationary. And this is another thing that I ended up writing about because I thought it was an interesting economic observation, right? Producing anything in a competitive market is not inflationary. Dollars. Bitcoin, cars, you produce them, not inflation, right? So um, it, the inflation results strictly from signers, monopoly protection. You're, you're, you're not, you're, you're producing them and extracting a higher price from everybody who receives them than you paid to, to make it. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if okay. you have monopoly protection for anything, you get higher prices, right? You get inflation. Um, 
And that's, that's why you have monopoly. So you can do that, right? You don't have competition to bring your price down. So anyway, that's fiat. I see. Okay. That's great. Um, is it worthwhile introducing the concept of credit into Bitcoin on a, on a, on a, on a higher layer? Credit debit, debt. You don't, nobody needs to introduce credit. Um, and it's not something that can exist in the way we think of Bitcoin. Um, credit is lending somebody money. Mm. So I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to the thought, maybe write it down, but I'm going to digress on, on something I thought was very interesting. Um, it's, I wrote a topic about it. Um, the, so I'm trying to remember his name. So, so I can't remember his name. I feel bad. I met, I met this um, guy in Hong Kong at scaling on a rooftop party. And we had a long talk. Um, he had written an alternative implementation of Bitcoin um, in another language or whatever, and then sold it. I forget his name. Uh, can come to me? Uh, he passed away about a year or two ago. Um, and oh, him. I don't know his name. No, no, Gareth told me about him. Yeah, anyway, sure. I, I feel bad. Um, I, 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 I knew it. I just, my memory is awful, especially with names. But um, anyway, so I, I knew him um, just that once. And, uh, you know, we had both done implementations. I was working on the Bitcoin, and so we had a nice talk about it. Later, this was years later, he introduced on, uh, it was on Bitcoin Dev. He posted a note and he said, I'm, this is what I'm working on. And I was like, Ugh, you know, this is this is not a good idea. And um, uh, it's nothing to do with implementation. I very rarely end up looking at implementation details. I look first and foremost at like, you know, the economic impact of these things and the consequences and the behavior. And, you know, we ended up having a long back and forth about it on Bitcoin Dev, the, the mailing list. And it was since I wrote the topic uh, risk free rate of return fallacy or risk free return fallacy or something like that. Um, and this has to do with lending money. And basically what he was advocating for was a, um, a new opcode in Bitcoin. And this has been discussed for other reasons or maybe similar reasons in the past, um, a covenant. Now a covenant for those at home who don't know in Bitcoin is, an, it would be, it's a theoretical opcode, uh, which is a script instruction that, that um, has this behavior where the coin can be returned. This is one of the ways to look at it. The coin can be returned to say the one, a spender after say a certain amount of time. So this is a time covenant, time or height, whatever, right? So you spend, you spend some Bitcoin to somebody and then after a certain amount of times goes back, it just magically is yours or maybe some other criteria, right? And then, and then it's yours again, that person is, doesn't have it, right? You do. And um, this has been proposed to guarantee certain behaviors. And while his, his idea was that Such as? Lend, lending, right? So in this case, this is about lending. So you, you lend somebody some Bitcoin under a covenant. They pay you mm -hmm. upfront interest. So you get the interest upfront. So say it's 10% interest. You get, you get 10% and they get the money to use for say a year, right? So you lend them one Bitcoin, you get 0.1 Bitcoin. At the end, you get your principal back as well. Sounds naively ideal, right? We can guarantee this principal return. But 
what has actually happened is that person who borrowed the money did it so they could produce something, right? They wanted to do something with it. They didn't want to sit on it, right? And sit on it for a year. I've, I prove to people I have a Bitcoin and then, and then, and then give it back. So they, when they spend it, it goes to somebody else and somebody else has traded something for it. So I went and bought a car and I got the car. Somebody else has got my Bitcoin, right? My borrowed Bitcoin. And that person who sold me the car then goes and pays their suppliers for all the parts and whatever that they took to make the cars. So these suppliers now have some of my Bitcoin and they've got the parts. And then these suppliers are paying their employees and, you know, whatever miners are digging up metal parts and whatever, making batteries so they can supply those parts. And then at the end of this chain, after a year goes by, the people who are at the end of the chain are all bag holders. All They're just all bag holders, right? They got nothing. And I'm like, this is the ultimate scam coin, right? Like, <laughs> and so, so the value of that money after one year is zero, right? Now that's what it would be. I borrowed it and I paid it back. It would still be, I'd still have zero of it, but I produce something in, in return. And um, that profit that I made in production is how I paid it back. Or I just didn't use it at all. And I paid it back and I wasted my interest. So, um, the idea, the idea here was, you know, that that um, was 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 just a, a clear error because what happens? I, it was it was hard for me to. I wanted to clearly put it into words, right? I want some math behind this, so like this this doesn't make sense. So I finally I finally used the concept of, of imputed value, right? If I know something is going to be worthless, like so, that the last person that's getting it on the last day, they know it's worthless. They're not going to take it. Right. Tomorrow it's worth zero. I can't pawn it off on anybody else. It's like, a, what do you call it? A, a demurrage money. All right. Demurrage money. It's a it's a it's like it's like visible inflation. You pay a tax to be able to spend the money, to be able to use the money after a certain date. There's been a lot of countries who have tried this in the past. Right. Demurrage is. It's a fee for holding something it goes back to old shipping terminology. But um, so it's like a demurrage money where, you know, after a certain amount of time, it's 100 percent tax on the money. And so with demurrage money, what people try to do is spend it as fast as they can, because every day it becomes worth less and less and less. Right. So that person that, that is going to get it on the last day knows it's worth zero. But the person who's going to spend it to them knows that as well. So they know they're not going to be able to spend it then. And this zero value gets imputed all the way back to the first transaction where the, where the first person who gets it knows nobody's going to take this money because it's going to be worth zero. Right. It's and like a the effect. value is also zero, right? You're, you're paying somebody for something that's worth nothing. And only, the only way this works is if they don't know it, which means it's inherently a scam, if you know it, right? And so, so like, this was not his intent, right? He, I honestly maybe just didn't understand this. And I was like, this is, you know, we got to the point where he couldn't really argue it anymore. So we, we, we diverged on another aspect of this, which was, using the borrowed money for um, tagging, uh, so essentially a colored coin-like concept where I would track things, I would track something for a year. And then when I'm done with the tracking, you, you get it back, right? But uh, I found that interesting as well because paying interest, right? So I, I went, I, 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 again, I did a little bit of like pseudo math. I'm like, the, the amount of Bitcoin you need to track something is, you know, one Satoshi. Right. Let's set aside like relay standardness rules, whatever, like the smallest amount you would need to track something is one Satoshi, because that's the smallest transactable amount. Uh, if you can get somebody to mine it. Um, and let's say 
fees were zero or maybe one Satoshi, right? For you to transact your one Satoshi. I think I went down to these like absolutely smallest amounts, right? Like that's, that's what's necessary. Uh, everything else is going to be increased expense on top of that. Like when you, when you're moving this thing along, to, you, you're tracking it because you're transacting. So you're transacting and you're paying all these fees, but let's assume it's as you know, cheap as possible. Then, um, why, why would I pay interest for this? Why wouldn't I just use less, you know, spend less money, right? No, I, I, I come, you know, demonstrating the specifics of it is, 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 uh, is not going to be very clear, but basically it comes down to the point where it makes no sense to borrow money to do that. You're better off just taking the money you were going to prepay for the interest and using that for the tracking. So yeah, even that, even that kind of ancillary, ancillary use of this um, didn't make any sense. And, and he had referred to this as risk-free rate of return. You're going to get interest and you're going to take no risk. Um, and that gets back to your principle, which I asked you to put a pin in, right? Which is, which is, you know, secured lending. It doesn't exist. Right? And I, I don't like to use the idea, no risk, no reward. That's not really what it's about. It's just that the money has to be used to produce something in order to generate a return which means you're trading it with somebody to get something else. And then you're selling that thing, right? That's not securable on a chain. You're not guaranteeing yeah. that somebody's going to buy what you make. And right. you know, you're not, there's just no guarantees in that, right? The, right. the, the, the payback is going to be at risk um, because okay. humans are, you know, they, they subjectively value things. If they don't want the thing that you're making, they change their minds. They're not going to buy it. You can't pay it back. Too bad. Understood. Understood. Okay, so um, let's get let's get into a little bit into the Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin stuff. Um, I mean, you you've probably come across a whole bunch of the early ideas um, in, in the Bitcoin space. Uh, contributed quite a bit uh, in the form of maintaining and actually writing well hundreds of thousands of lines of code uh, for for LibBitcoin. Um, now, it, it's are you? Are you going to be looking at um, supporting, for example, the latest thing that's coming in recently, as I know, is, is Taproot? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I actually, so I was... What's your opinion on Taproot? And, and, I'm, I, I don't have any problem with it. I, I'm, first of all, I'm not a cryptographer. And when you get into the, the subtleties of that stuff, you know, I, I kind of I take people's word for it. There's a lot of good, really smart people working on some of these things and and when they when it makes it as far as that's made it i you know i have pretty good confidence in that it's going to it it it, it yeah, works the way they say it does um i'm really not qualified to to critique at that level i'm i'm more of a software engineer i i, I like to you know I, I work on code that's reliable maintainable easy to read um functions well and, and performs well when it comes to, to that kind of stuff. Now, when it, you know, as, as we just demonstrated, when it comes to the economic principles behind some of these things, yeah, I, I, I will critique at that level. I didn't even bother reading the implementation details because it didn't matter to me, right? Um, and the, with respect to Taproot, you know, it has, we're tr trying to achieve certain things and I think those are achievable and the limits of them are fairly well understood and I think it's a net positive and it's fine. Um, I, I was asked to join a working group early on um, that was of people that had some interest and uh, some company that I was, I was given a pitch to and, and they were involved. So I joined this working group and 
<laughs> I usually don't like I didn't do Segwit until it activated, right? And I was <laughs> I, I I wrote it in like a week and I put it in the Bitcoin and it was all good. Um, you know, we don't have enough of a presence as nodes to really have to have it implemented, have something like that implemented um, for the purpose of activation. But if, if people are using something like that, you know, that, that affects consensus, uh, certainly gets implemented um, as a priority. So um, and, and that's happened. That happened with previous softworks. I've been through this several times. And uh, with Taproot, I decided to get a little bit out front because it looked to me like it was going to activate. I was involved in this group. So I, I went and I started. Um, I, I created a branch and it's in my repo, my personal repo right now. Um, and I, w I was like, I was all excited. I'm going to, I'm probably going to have the first implementation of Taproot. I was almost done. I had done it all. I, I do this all from the specs. Um, you know, our code looks nothing like core or anything else. It's all, it's never been a fork. And it's, you know, the, it's fairly, when it comes to the consensus rules and script, it's pretty straightforward code, very straightforward code. So, I just went and I started implementing this and going through the specs and, you know, reasoning things out. And uh, I had about 90% done with um, script validation consensus stuff. And then I got sidetracked. I did my conference. I did you know, a bunch of other things with traveling. And, and if you look at my repo history for like a year and a half, I, I hardly checked in anything. I was working on the book, writing and personal issues. So um, I didn't do it. I didn't get it out. But it would have, it, I don't know if somebody, you know, somebody must have been working on a core fork before that, but there was nothing, no pull requests or nothing were out yet. And I was like, oh, got the first implementation of Taproot. But the history is there. You know, you can see that it was mostly done. Um, anyway, so yeah, it'll, uh, I, I started working um, full time again on code about a month ago and um, spent most of my time up to this point just, um, working on build system and uh, upgrades to platforms and just a lot of uh, cruft I, uh, I wanted to work out in that code. I mean, code keeps moving forward a little more slowly, but I, I wanted to do that. So I'm, I've, got a, I've got a lot of this backlog that I'm working off um, so that I can work faster. And then I'll get back into a couple of features. Um, looks like you know, plenty of time in terms of activation to finish, you know, get all that done and then, and then, and then finish off this taproot. Um, consensus based stuff. Um, then it, then you get into like, okay, what, what's, the, what's the impact on um, wallet code? Like we have a command line utility uh, called Bitcoin Explorer or VX. It does all kinds of interesting things with, it's got like 98 commands and, you know, but I, I, I never even implemented SegWit features in that. Uh, and nobody else has yet either, but SegWit is fully implemented in the, in the node and uh, the scripting uh, system and in the node. So there's all these other things you can do. Uh, I think somebody came along and added SegWit address um, parsing and support, um, batch 32 and, and uh, that kind of stuff to the to the code base and then the command line utility. So that came along and then so similar stuff will happen with Taproot. Consensus, consensus stuff will get done first and then, and then there'll be utility support for other things. Um, and uh, so yeah, it's good. But I, I, I also tell people I don't really work on futures. There's all these things that are proposed and they just accelerate, you know, every year there's more and more and more things that could happen. I just kind of wait till somebody's yeah. actually using it or somebody comes along and there's been people that come along requested things that aren't active. And I, I, there's some Bitcoin developers that do contract work and I, I kind of direct them at them and help them out. And, and uh, they've worked on things that are, you know, they're proposed, but they're not, they're not active yeah. uh, anywhere. And they get done. If somebody wants to pay for that. Um, we just it seems that. like 
the kind of yeah. the rule is, you know, nothing goes into the code base unless it's solving it, a problem. It's it's got well, it's it's Bitcoin, right? It it conforms to the principles that I described, and there's um, it, it's not a one-off, right? It's not some custom job for whatever. That's you know, go go hire one of our guys and do some customer. But it has to, in other words, it has to make it into the to the public repo, or uh, I don't work on it. Um, yeah. Seems like you're a bit of the Peter Hinchins of uh, of zero MQ, but of, uh, you know of Bitcoin. I I've interacted with Peter quite a few times, and I noticed that on your GitHub um, repository, you 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 part of the iMatics and as well as the zero MQ. So <clears throat> I, I'm betting that there's going to be an interesting formative, uh, you know, influence that that he might have had you you two might have had on each other. What's what's the story there? Well, I don't I don't know if you know. Uh, Peter passed away a couple of years ago. I know very yeah. well. It's 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 affected a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And and uh, so we use zero MQ extensively in the client server interface. Um, okay. We we you know Amir started that, and he was a big fan of Peter's. And uh, first thing I did when I started when I made the decision to start working on the Bitcoin is I went out and I met Amir. I, I wanted to know who this guy was and that we could work together, et cetera. And and we got along great. And he was he was a big fan of Peter's, and I started digging in eventually into the ZeroMQ code, and I I became a maintain. So we ended up using I don't know if Amir was using it, but we ended up using um, GSL. I think it's General Scripting Language, which Peter had written. Yeah, it's the done a lot of work FSMs. Sorry, FSMs, finite state machines. Mm. Oh, GSL is a is a is a DSL for making finite state machines, isn't it? Um. I don't know. I just, I just, I describe it as a scripting language. I mean, maybe, maybe Peter could get that abstract, but, but uh, <laughs> yes, he could. <laughs> it, it basically, you know, it takes an XML document as input data, and it, right, yeah. it has, it has, you know, facility to parse it out and use template. It has a template language, and the script basically is the glue between the the input data and the output templates, and allows you to generate code. So. Um, we have a very large repository. You know, we have a developer library. It's not a, it's not an application. Um, it has it has binaries, but um, it's ten repositories. You know, system repository, network, um, P2P protocol. Network is P2P protocol stuff. Node. Um, there's the BX client, which sits on top of the whole client stack, and then the server, which sits on top of the server stack. Node, network. Um, client server protocol, et cetera. So there's, there's 10 repositories. And we ended up with a whole repository just for the build system. And it's it's all uh, GSL. And so we had, you know, a couple issues come up with GSL. I ended up becoming maintained. You know, we make it back in the day when when, when Peter uh, ran those things, uh, he, he, he owned the iMatics repository because that was the name of his company. And uh, so he made one, one pull request that wasn't crappy and he made you a maintainer, you know. So I <laughs> became a maintainer of iMatics, which had a consequence eventually because after he passed away, nobody had access to that repo. There were, nobody had the access to it. Yeah. So um, I was able to merge code, but I wasn't an admin. So I was like the one person uh, that was, that was active on it. I don't know if anybody else was. And so we eventually decided to fork it over to uh, a ZMQ repo where um, another guy who I've never met, though, he kind of took over. And I was also a maintainer on ZMQ. There were three libraries we used there under one Amir had. I got it down to just one. 
So we use libzmq, and I was maintaining the uh, the Windows builds for that until they finally got some C CMake builds. Um, and because we support Windows, Mac OS, and, and Linux. And uh, anyway, so I, when I started working on the ZMQ stuff, I, I decided I really wanted to go meet Peter. So I went out to Brussels and uh, spent a weekend. Play guitar, drink whiskey. It was absolutely fascinating. I just, it was such a good time. And, you know, I, I, I remember just thinking, like, I, I can't wait to, like, come back here again and hang out. And within a year, he was passed away. It was, it was, it was sad. Um, but we had some great talks. Um, and uh, I didn't know, I mean, it, you know, he had lung cancer and, uh, and, it, and it was in remission and I didn't know. And then it came back with a vengeance and, and uh, took him. Yeah. So, yeah, he gave me, a, he gave me a, you know, one of his books. You know, I mean, he wrote a bunch of books. They're all very interesting, kind of wacky. Uh, which, one, which one did you get? I got, I got two of them. I think I bought one and he gave me the other one and signed it when I was there, but I can't remember the name. Culture and Empire. Yeah, I have that one. Yeah, it was interesting, eh? Was yeah, one, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff. He's a lot of insight, insight, interesting insights that that fella yeah, does. Yeah, you know, he, I don't know, you're, you're you're South African. He grew up in Africa. Yeah, and uh, he spoke like seven languages. And uh, he took took me out to he he uh, took me out to Little Congo in in Brussels and had <laughs> a great meal. And uh, during the day, we were walking around. It was great. You know, in Brussels, you just get a drink, you know, have a beer, and you just walk around the streets. It's so fun. And so we're walking around the sunny day in Brussels. We stop by the river, and we sit on some bleacher seats, and there's some African drum band playing, you know, just Congo drums and whatever. And it was really cool. You know, the guy, and the guy comes up to me, and he hands me some drums. And I don't you know. I'm, I'm awful. I'm beating on these drums. And then, he, and then he goes over to Peter, and I'm like, you know, if you know Peter, you look at him, you're like, this is going to be, he's going to be worse than me. Right. Like, <laughs> and oh my God, he starts wailing on these drums. He's amazing. And I'm like, what the, and then later I find out it's his band. <laughs> he actually started it and they practice in his garage and he didn't even tell me we were just sitting there for 20 minutes. <laughs> it was really funny. Um, yeah. I had a great time with him. So oh, he's a fantastic fella. You know, we did we did carry forward some of the principles uh, that he had. I think you know Amir used his reasoning for the uh, uh, the licensing on the Bitcoin. Mm. And, you know, some aspects of process, right? Somebody very he had a very open process. If somebody contributed, he made him a maintainer. And yeah, that, I have a similar too. I probably you know, probably failed to kind of keep up with that. But you know, if somebody comes in, they do some good stuff. Yeah, make him a maintainer. So, you know, most people don't stick around, but. Uh, encourage participation, you know, and, and encourage, you know, merging code. And his, yeah. his, his philosophy was, you know, if it's screwed up, you know, people will find out and, you know, you'll learn your lesson, but we're going to stop you. You know, if it compiles and it looks reasonable, we're going to put it in there. And, and, uh, um, um, and then we'll, and then we'll work it out later. So the, the project moves pretty quickly and uh, yeah. it's, it's a great project solving problems and is still doing that um okay so what's your okay uh yeah i wrote down credit over there i think you've already you've already answered the the credit thing now we we spoke more on an implementation level of taproot but what's your opinion on on the economic benefit of of taproot and what does it what does it enable um given that you know we're just a bunch of monkeys that are looking at this fire now and we're just trying to understand what bitcoin is well, it's um, funny. when i look at like when i'm going through two or three bips you know amir created the bip system 
Yeah, right. Right, you wrote BIP1 because because the process was so closed, he took the Python, you know, the PIP system, and he brought it over to Bitcoin. And so I, I love that, you know, a guy that never merged a single line of code into Bitcoin, into Satoshi's prototype, which is now Bitcoin Core, he created the BIP system for them. <laughs> um yeah, so I'm I'm going through I'm going through like two or three bips to to implement this stuff, and you know I, you can you can do that, and you can implement the whole thing, get all the tests passed, know that it's right, and not have any clue what it does, right? And I, I have some I have some idea what it does, but like you just you're just making everything line up right. So uh, that that's kind of from a high level, you know, Taproot, from my perspective, you know, improves privacy, maybe compresses data on the on the chain uh, allows allows some more creative things to be done in script uh, but the privacy enhancement is is to me um, you know the important aspect of it uh, getting snore signatures in um, and being able to compress multi-sig it's you know more efficient and more private but it's not a major you know it's not a you know game-changing event right we still have privacy issues and we'll have privacy but it is major because, because I mean, that, that is the whole efficacy of, of Bitcoin, which allows you to be a rat and hide but from the state. It's not, right? it's not effective enough to, oh. it's not a solution to that problem. And I don't, I don't think anybody who's work, working on it at a very low level is, is going to suggest that it is. I mean, I've seen people suggest it is not. It's a modest improvement. It enables certain things. Um, you know, Bitcoin moves forward at a steady snail's pace. And there's other stuff that's always going on. Um, a lot of great experimentation in altcoins, which, you know, it's not my expertise. I don't work on futures, but I, I, uh, I expect these things will just continue to, to evolve and privacy will continue to improve because why not? Right. What's going to stop it? Um, my objective with LeBitcoin is to provide um, a, a platform for people to build stuff on that's actually Bitcoin. Um, because there isn't another one there, there, there is, there's, you know, web APIs, you know, you can go use Coinbase or whatever, or you can fire up an application and connect to it, you know, um, uh, like the Toshi client or a bunch of you know, language clones, uh, or forks of that. And, um, if you, if you work in C++, like, I've worked in a lot of languages and C++ is a good language for Bitcoin for, for a node. Right. And it's what, you know, Satoshi chose. And, uh, and, so uh, but he wasn't that much of a software engineer, right? No, I wasn't, but he made, he, he didn't write, he didn't write great code, but he, but he made good decisions. And that was, okay. you know, he certainly could have chose other things. He certainly wasn't an expert in C development. Um, and that's not where you would start if you're not an expert, right? Um, but he chose it and, uh, it was very, it was, he had an eye on, performance and you know as a systems programming language um, C++ is, is good and it's ubiquitous and that's another aspect of it it's you know it's widely used and and, and ported and, and everything and it's it's kind of a common denominator and, and I'm an older guy so you know all this new stuff you know people doing stuff with what I essentially consider script I don't even to me, it's these. These are these are toys experiments. Oh come on, Rust isn't that much of a toy. It's no, no, not that much of a. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't call I wouldn't call Rust people script kitties either. But you know, uh, yeah, and you can compile JavaScript now. But you know, a type safe language might be a good idea, right? And you know, some a language where the compiler can actually give you some help. You know, yes. 
I mean, um, so yeah, I, 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 Microsoft bought my first company. I spent a couple of years there. And uh, when I came out, I did, um, I brought some people with me and I did a project for a couple, couple of years in, and most of it was C sharp or, or web development. So a lot of JavaScript, a lot of C sharp, a lot of database work and, and stuff. And you know, C sharp, it's, I, I'd done a lot of, I'd done a lot of Java work in a past life too, a lot. And I was like, this is a really elegant language. You know, it's, it's very Microsoft, right? It's very proprietary. It's opened up a lot, but it's very elegant. But when I looked at Bitcoin, I actually I actually gave it a thought because I just done all the C sharp work, and I'm like, no, no, it's got to be C plus plus. This doesn't make any sense. I, I was aware of all the limitations of these of these uh, intermediate language platforms and stuff, especially from Microsoft. That was the cause of the whole Vista debacle was was putting too much managed code in the operating system. Sure. Systems level programming, you know, you want to be able to manage your own memory and you want optimal performance and uh, compact code, et cetera. And um, anyway, so I, I also noticed that somebody was actually working on a C-sharp implementation and um, I forget his name. He's, he's still around, I think, working on Bitcoin stuff. Um, what was it called? Uh, it, it may still be out there, but did a, did a pretty pretty extensive implementation based on C-sharp. Anyway, so even though C++ C++ would not have been my favorite environment to work in. Yeah. Like, and so I looked around for what was what existed in C++. I, I spent a few days poking around Bitcoin D and I was like, Jesus, right? This is this is impenetrable code. And then um, I somehow found the Bitcoin and I looked around it and happened to have a, a close friend um, from college who had actually made a post to the Bitcoin mailing list. And I was like, what the heck, right? It's, so I got, I couldn't get a hold of Amir. So I got him to give me an intro to Amir. They knew each other and spent some time looking at it. And I was like, you know, this is actually pretty good code. It's very readable code. And um, he's making good engineering decisions, right? good architectural decisions, uh, even though it has had a long way to go. And I just thought it was, you know, it was an opportunity to actually um, have, have something to start with and, and work for there. But I've been very happy with it. Um, I'm not happy with the fact that I haven't gotten it quite as far as I want to get it, but um, done a couple of major releases and this last one I've been working on for a couple of years, but I took about a year and a half off. So now I'm back. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know what, how we got on the topic of language and stuff, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I know that some of the, some of the language ports are, are really have been just academic exercises. People I've talked to have written them like, yeah, I just wanted to see if I could do this and whatever, you know, sure. get a minimal sure. load learning or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, I th I think Lib Bitcoin's contribution to the space is 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 phenomenal. It's it's so critical, so important. I mean, if you just try and do like you know signing of signatures, uh, big it with Bitcoin D, it's just. Well, it, it's an application, and the only yeah, yes, I understand is this JSON RPC, you know, interface, yeah. which is not designed for any kind of scale or security. Right, you you yeah. got to co-host this thing. And, you know, that was a decision that Amir made when he said, well, if I'm going to make a node, I want to be able to communicate it, communicate with it performantly, right? Instead of having everybody pull all the data out of the node, put it into a, some proprietary database, and then run queries over it and answer those queries and do your block explorer, right? Or whatever. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why not just query the thing directly? It's already a database of the data. Yeah. Had, um, so he, he chose the ZeroMQ API, which provides, um, um, I, I actually work with Peter. I, I hired iMatics 
and he contracted it out to somebody to to implement in ZMQ, which is now in ZMQ. You know, I said I want it to go into the maintained public code base. It's generic, but I wanted to be able to use SOX five so that I could um, sit a node behind um, Tor server. So I was running Tor and I2P at home and I was like, oh shit, I can't, I can't do this with ZMQ because it, it, it operates at the lowest level um, above TCP or whatever the network protocol is, right? It's Ethernet. No, well, not Ethernet. It operates above like say TCP, IP, UDP, UDP oh, okay. whatever, you know, any, any kind of transport protocol. It's just right on top of that. Right. So um, it's not on top of HTTP or anything like that, like JSON RPC, right? It, it's, it's, it's a pretty low level. So the, the data has to be structured with knowledge of socks, right? It w wasn't possible to do just using it off the shelf. And I was not going to try to attempt that. And they knocked it out. I think I paid seven grand. And they, they knocked it out and it went into the main line and it worked perfectly. Awesome. Right? And uh, um, I, I don't know if that was before or after I went out and met him. I think it was, I think it was after, right after I came back. I said, hey, I want to do this. And so now the Bitcoin can sit behind, and it does sit behind, you know, um, Tor servers, uh, which is great. You can be a hidden service um, just because of that. You know, now it's just a couple of configuration settings in, 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 the, uh, in the config file, not just one. It's like, a, it's like another endpoint you open up. And so um, the client server protocol being ZMQ um, was designed, done for a lot of reasons, right? It's a much, much more maintainable code base. It's, it scales out into all different types of topographies allows broadcast push subscription um, you know load balancing uh, I, I ended up getting uh, I, I was working in libsodium because they had a dependency CMQ had a dependency on libsodium for curve CP curve yeah yeah it, it's it, it Peter had brought or somebody in the organization had brought in um, so Curve CP, for those at home, is uh, an implementation of um, Bernstein's uh, Daniel Bernstein's, yeah. Yeah, for replacement for TLS, which people yeah. call SSL, right? So um, server identity, uh, or, or, or you know, server identity, packet level privacy, client identity, uh, all of the above, you know, both if you want it. And so I ended up doing work in ZMQ to um, uh, bring in, I didn't like having another dependency. I hate dependencies, right? Libsodium. And all we needed was um, uh, the curve for uh, curve CP. And so somebody had wrote this thing called tweet knackle. They had tweeted out like, I don't know, 50 tweets or something. The entire the minimal source code in C for the curve used by Bernstein's and there was a somebody had then pasted you know put all these together into a source file and you go and go and get out and you pull out tweet knackle it's one little c file right <laughs> i'm like why do we have this whole dependency just to do curve cp so i pulled in tweet knackle <laughs> and i don't know maybe maybe there's some issues with tweet knackle i don't know but that's not for me to decide right like to me these are equivalent you've proved to me that they're not everything came out the same so um i was able to drop the uh, libsodium dependency, and so now, now I'm no longer actively maintaining a maintainer of libsodium, but I was for a while. Um, and uh, so we got tweet knackle in there. We got uh, we got socks five, and we you know uh, then there's key generation for curve CP in in Libsodium. and then there's serialization for the key generation, and all this stuff went into the Bitcoin. So the command line tool can generate keys based on a seed, 
emit them, you know, in serialized format, which basically they, they look, if you serialize them differently, they're exactly the same as Bitcoin public and private keys, 256 bit numbers. But I use the, they have base 85 serialization in Libsium Q because I don't know, Peter thought it was cool. But <laughs> so I brought, you know, we've, got, we've got base two, base 16, base 54, base 56, base 85, Base 32 now, that's what they call Betch 32, which is a brilliant name. Um, so we've got, we've got like six or seven, eight different, you know, serializations of numbers. And so we took this, if, if I had used like, you know, one of the Bitcoin serializations, it, it would have been horrible, right? So I use this Base 85, which has all these weird characters and everything. And so we have serialization, you know, you generate the keys, you serialize them, you take the thing, you paste it in your config file, and boom, you're done. That's it. It's, you know, no, no registering with, you know, um, an agency to get your certificate, you know, SSL Elways is completely private. You take your private key, you put it in the file, you're, you're the server, you, you know, you, you publish your public key. That's it. You, you, you want to be a client with identity, you put your private key in your config file and you give the server your public key. That's it. Nothing, it, just config file. And, uh, and so it's brilliant. You know, ZM, ZMQ has just been awesome. Uh, the downside to it is, uh, one, you have the dependency on LibZMQ, um, but it's very common, highly ported, every language, you know, it's it's great. Uh, easy to use in things like Python and um, PyZMQ. The, the other downside is that it's not um, JSON RPC, right? So all this infrastructure in the Bitcoin universe, it's been built up on having your own node and then, you know, or having a local node. You know, this, and, and plugging in uh, through these JSON RPC calls, uh, we don't support, <laughs> which is an adoption issue. So um, uh, a year or two ago, uh, one of the guys that works a lot on the Bitcoin decided to implement um, an R a JSON RPC. Actually, I don't know if you, I don't know if you want to get sidetracked in the story, but it's very to me, it's very interesting. Right? Let's go for it. So we have this node, which doesn't, a node doesn't do anything. You need an interface to the node. So we, you know, we have a series of libraries and a node inherits from the P2, so we have a class, P2P network class. It does P2P, but, but without a place to store the data, it's just a P2P network class. You can use it for just communicating, right? So then you add on database and blockchain. Blockchain sits on top of database. And now you have something to manage the information and keep track of the chain and store it and retrieve it for you. So now you have a query interface on a simple database. That's blockchain. Take node and blockchain and put them together and you have, I'm sorry, you take P2P network, which is called network and blockchain, another library class, and you put them together in, into the node class, which is another library. And now you have a node, right? You can talk on the network and you can store and retrieve data for the purpose of talking on the network. But there's no way to communicate with it at all except for the P2P network, unless you add an interface, right? So you can, you can implement your own interface on top of this by inheriting from the node class or containing it or whatever, and then writing your own queries against the blockchain, which is what we did. We have server, which sits on top of node. So server is actually a class that inherits from node. And there's an executable, which is a very thin wrapper that implements command line and config file parsing only and maintains the process. So server now is basically just a ZMQ. Right. It, it, we have another library called protocol, which is a set of C++ abstractions that are useful for us for sitting on top um, for, for communicating over the network. Since you think of it as client server stubs. So server has this very small amount of code as a result for maintaining uh, ZMQ endpoints. 
uh, for the different services that it wants to provide, and they're managed through the config file, and then it, it you know, uses the node to get and a node in blockchain to get and maintain the data. So when you're running server, you're you have a scalable, securable, highly performant, you know, uh, concurrent and asynchronous interface, both internally and through the ZMQ interface for communicating with the blockchain. Then the question is only what information do you want from the blockchain? And then you know, if you want to ask complex questions, now you get into you got to go back down the database and do indexing of whatever you want to ask. But so we index all the basic stuff. And this was a mirrors and these were all mirrors designs. I've spent a lot of time, you know, doing various things to them, but um, this was his design. And one of the things he did in the last design. So early on, he had made the change from whatever database he'd used initially to using uh, level DB, which is, I believe what core still uses. Um, but he didn't like level DB. He did all kinds of performance analysis. He graphed it all out. He showed me, it's like, uh, sucks, right? So, so he said, I'm going to go with memory mapped IO, um, which basically meant he created a series of files, one for transactions, one for headers, one for the, for the, yeah. uh, one for the height index, one for, um, an index, it, it just simply an index of payments, which are already in the transactions. Right. And, um, and that's essentially it, right? And and I've modified it quite a bit since then, but it's still the same basic idea. It has drawbacks, but when it comes to performance and simplicity, it's amazing. And basically what you're doing is you're just appending to a file. You, you open up a file, it's a memory. I love it. It's the same type of file that the, it's the same thing the operating system uses to maintain its, its sure. um, virtual memory, right? So you're not gonna improve upon the operating system's virtual memory management, otherwise you need a new operating system. So we let the operating system keep evolving its improvements to memory management, and we let it decide what's on the disk and what's in RAM. It's it, it's optimizing this stuff, right? It's paging stuff on and off. And and so if you have enough RAM and you're reading and writing from these files, it's all in memory. There's no reason for it to, to put, you know, to, to, to be reading it off the disk. It keeps it in memory until it runs out of memory and it's constantly moving back and forth. So the operating system is designed to do that. Um, and so, you get the structure of the data in these files is hash tables. Now these are these are not tables that like have the 256-bit hash as the key, right? They, they, they have they have um, in Bitcoin we talk about hashes. These are natural keys. They're inherent in the data, right? You run a function on the data, you get the key. Everybody sees the same key, same transaction ID. Those are natural keys. The database uses. Um, um, surrogate keys, which are local to the database, right? So um, they could be unique to the, the one one database based on implementation, or they could be the same across everybody's doesn't matter because they're completely internal and they're used to, so we have a hash table of transactions, a hash table of headers, a hash table that indexes payments. Um, and then a, a simple uh, array of heights, which are pointers into the headers. And so, uh, which basically maintains the path through the tree. And um, hash tables have this characteristic of constant time lookup. I mean, worst case, you have you have linear lookup, but it depends on how many hash conflicts you have. And you can manage that if the data is fairly predictable. And Bitcoin data is very, you know, predictably random, you know, essentially. So you get very you get very highly dispersed and, and and Amir did a bunch of analysis on this and we end up with an average of you know 1.5 
items per bucket. In other words, very, very little hash collision. So in other words, when you do a lookup for something, you go direct, you know, you run a little math function, you go directly to the memory offset and there it is, right? It's on the disk, but once it's been read once or just got written, it's in memory, right? So little math, boom, read it out um, directly from memory. Fast as greased lightning. Ser yeah, serialize it. And then what are you gonna do? You gotta, you gotta send it out to somebody who asked for it, right? So you go through ZMQ. So if you're if you're in a, if you're in a, if you're in another process on the same machine, ZMQ defaults to you know um, I don't know what what I'm what on uh, different machines the what's the protocol anyway it, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna drop down to the most efficient protocol. So if you're in process, it doesn't even it doesn't even move out of the memory space, right? It's the same memory. It just moves it from here over to here, and now you've got it. So if you're writing some, your own server, which we do, right? We're using ZMQ as this interface but it's not being reserialized or anything like that. If you don't have the same machine, it's out of process. So it enters a new memory space, but it's using a very efficient local network protocol. If you move it to your LAN, you could use a different protocol. If you move it over the internet, you could need another one. If you want security, you could have add curve CP. These are all different additional costs, but they're much lower in terms of overhead than you get from something like HTTP or SSL. It's, that's ridiculous by comparison, right? So, um, so very efficient, but then you also get the, the uh, I mean, there's so many interesting aspects to, and it's not certain, none of these are my areas of expertise. Again, I'm just kind of a generalized generalist, but um, but in, in ZMQ, you have, one of the things that Peter discovered, um, learned over years of working on large corporate and government systems that were doing messaging back in the early year days was, you know, how to do messaging. It's not, it's called JP Morgan for a reason, right? It's no message queue. And um, it's just brilliant, right? Um, and when I finally figured it out, like, like how do I manage, how do I, I, I got, I say I have 10,000 clients, right? And I got to broadcast to these clients, but this one's really slow. I'm trying to get at the data and it won't take it. I'm, everybody else is waiting on me or I've got another thread, right? But I'm tying up, I'm tying up some thread or I'm, I'm tying up something um, to communicate or somebody's pushing data to me and they're, and they're pushing too much. They're not taking enough or they're pushing too much. It's the classic, you know, distributed system problem. And it just, you know, it's just a very elegant system. You just, you know, you have timeouts and overflows. So you push it too much data to me. I just start dropping the data and uh, you won't take it fast enough. I, you know, I, I move on. I drop you. Um, you want to block yourself? That's great. You know, this, so, so I got to the point where I realized, well, okay, when this happens, how does somebody know what's happened? And so we started putting message, you know, uh, sequential message sequences um, on things that were like broadcast blocks, broadcast transactions, um, and queries, right? So now you know, okay, I, I missed something. I'll go back and get it. And uh, so it has it has incredible, you know, performance characteristics. And under most circumstances, you don't, you're not going to see anything drop. Um, these are extreme circumstances. And what we did is we implemented uh, multiple endpoints. We have broadcast endpoints for transactions. So you know, we have 100,000 subscribers on our one endpoint on one machine for for uh, transactions, right? New transactions. And just, you know, comes into memory once and we just, just blast it out to everybody. Um, and same thing for blocks. And then we have a query interface. So this is a bunch of people asking us unique questions. It's more costly on the server to answer these questions, right? And who knows, somebody's attacking you. So you, you know, you want to want to open this up to everybody, but you want to deal with, you know, whatever. We don't consider anything malicious. It's just like we're not if we're not handling it right. If, if we're allowing things to go bad, it's our fault. Right. So 
basically people can kind of do whatever they want and uh, it works. And the query interface, so what we do when we fire up the server is each one of these endpoints gets its own logical thread, which generally maps to a physical thread, I assume, you know, on the machine. But, um, but for the server endpoint, for the query endpoint, and, and by the way, these, these endpoints are independent for secured and non-secured. So you can have a non-secured endpoint, or you can have one with curved CP uh, for any, any of these. So it's like maybe eight endpoints. And you can put the whole thing behind Tor or not if you want to. But on the server endpoint, we, we allow the, uh, the administrator to configure how many threads they want. And we'll let that go up to the, the total number of available physical threads not, not consumed by the other services. Um, and the whole thing, the whole, you know, the node itself is can run on, you know, I run on 64 threads to test it out. I have a 64 core machine I've had for a couple of years. And so the node is highly parallel and uh, has always been asynchronous. So you can run very efficiently on just a single thread. So that, you know, you run one to n threads and we just kind of generally cap it at the physical number. And then the server takes up one per endpoint. Um, and then the, the, the query service you can configure is as many as you want up to the what's available. So you can have a query server that, you know, on a single thread on running a node, it can handle an ungodly, you know, amount of queries, um, but you can also scale that up. So the idea of scalability in, in, in programming in computer science is you add more hardware, you get better performance. You know, on a linear basis is what you, what that really means, right? That's scalable. Right. When we talk about scalability, I have one that's called the scalability fallacy in Bitcoin. Bitcoin's not scalable in any way, right? There's a fixed number of transactions that go through it, period, right? It doesn't, that doesn't ever change. And um, so when we talk about scalability um, in, in, in Bitcoin implementations, what we're talking about is you add more hardware and you get an, a proportional increase in performance. So if you think about this architecture I just described to you, right? you're not going to improve upon constant time, at least programmatic complexity, right? Big O notation. You're not going to improve on constant time lookup for data. You're not going to improve upon uh, in-memory local, you know, data. And you're going to have as much, more memory you have, the more it's going to get used until it's all in memory. And I have a, I have like a 256 gig RAM machine here that I used to use to put the whole chain in. Um, I mean, I, it could be there if I was querying it, it would become all memory resident. So, um, and it won't all fit there anymore, but um, I've stepped up again with my Mac Pro. I haven't plugged it in yet, but I can do it. So uh, um, I, that's why I got two 64 core machines about five years ago. Um, and I still use this one I'm on now uh, for the purpose of scaling out that. So, you know, if you, can, if you can make the code be able to run in parallel, then as you add more, you get more. Now, there's a limit to that because it's a cost of distribution of the work, right? So you reach an eventual limit, but you don't want the limit to be because you didn't do that, right? That, that's the limit. So you didn't make it asynchronous and, and parallelizable. So any any function I write in C++ that's a loop, I'm going to ask myself, does this need to be sequential, right? This, can I, can I, don't, can all these, you know, 10,000 operations be done in parallel? Okay, great. So I'll use a, I'll use a, you know, an unordered loop. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to be careful with that around consensus questions. Um, but uh, that's what we do is like break it down to what's logically necessary and go, okay, well, all this stuff can be done in parallel. So let's find, let's find a way to be done doing this in parallel. Let's, it, it, you know, if you have the RAM, we want to use the RAM. That's why you bought it, right? So let's use all the RAM. Um, 
will be efficient with disk space, but but not to the point of hurting performance, right? So yeah. chain is about the big big in our node is, is in core, I think. It's about comparative, it's about the same. But yeah. we don't delete any data. We we append. Transaction comes in, we append it to the transaction table. Later it gets confirmed. It's yeah. already there. Great. You know, header comes in, great. And you know, if it yeah. if it gets forked off, we don't care. It's still there. No problem. We're not gonna prune it, right? These like so we just it's very efficient. Things come in. We just pen the file. We want to query it. Constant hunt lookup. It's all in RAM. Parallel process as much you can, and then distribute it using the, the most performance interface you can imagine. So if you're going to write up this goes all right. So I did this whole digression. But if you're going to write a block explorer, what do you need? Right? You need addresses. You need transactions. You need headers. You need heights right? at a at a minimum. So we had all this stuff, and we had this ZMQ interface. But I'm like, wouldn't it be nice if you could just fire up our server? And open up a web browser and talk to it. So then you get into dependencies, right? Web code sucks. And it, it's bad code. You don't want it in your implementation. And the dependencies are big. And I have yet to find good C++, you know, kind of open source license friendly stuff I could embed. So this guy who did this work, uh, Neil, he, uh, he tried a couple of things. And I was like, nope, that doesn't pass the smell test, right? We, like, first of all, there's a lot of bugs in this code. And second of all, it doesn't satisfy the license. So we went through a couple of things. He finds it, fuck it, I'm just going to write it myself. So he wrote, he wrote, a, uh, he wrote a, uh, a simple ACDP and then added uh, support for TLS, which does require a third-party library, unfortunately, but put it in there. And then he made a web page. And I said, like, well, just, just serialize that web page and put it in a resource in the, in the, in the binary. So, so basically, you fire up the server, open up your browser and point to it, and boom, you got a block explorer. He wrote a block explorer. You know, simple. Um, and you know, the web front end is not scalable. That's not, it's not designed for that, but it's a simple interface GUI to the thing. It's like a beginning of something new and interesting, but then we realized, okay, well, wait a minute, you got HTTP here. Why don't you do JSON RPC? So we started writing a, uh, a little JSON RPC interface and, um, has a subset of the, you know, core APIs. So that's all there. It, it, it needs a little work, but it works. Um, on the other hand, a company in Canada, um, I don't think it's doing business anymore, but they were some good engineers. Uh, they wrote a they wrote a web they wrote a uh, web front end for our server, and this this was back in like 2017 when mempool was going crazy, price was spiking, whatever. And they got they already had it done, and they were they had a little interaction with me, but they did it mostly on them on their own. And it's called Voyager, I think. Um, Bitcoin mm. The source code's still out there. Um, and what they did was they, they used their own web front end technologies, which, I, you know, according to them, were highly scalable and great tech. And then they just used um, a ZMQ interface from that directly to our server, right? Probably the only block explorer that's ever been written that <laughs> actually talks to the node, right? And so we don't, we don't have a mempool. We don't keep transactions in memory. That's ridiculous. Why, why would you do that? Right. We put them on the disk. The disk is in memory. So, you know, just put them on the disk. <laughs> so you validated them already. Put them on the disk. They're not confirmed yet. Doesn't matter. Most of them will get confirmed. Well, not all of them. Right. So, so anyway, I point that out because during this time period, block explorers were failing. Companies were shutting, you know, exchanges were failing. This was happening on a regular basis because mempools were overflowing with yeah, why would why is it in memory in the first place, right? Why do you have a C object holding this thing in RAM um, yeah. when you could just put it on the disk? So their block explorer was ext 
extraordinarily fast and it never hiccuped. It was, it would just scream. It, it didn't matter. It doesn't matter how big the mempool is. It's constant time lookup against memory on disk. doesn't matter how much of it there is, right? It, it makes no consequence whatsoever. How big the chain is, how big the, the unconfirmed set of transactions, I call it transaction pool, not the mempool. doesn't matter. And so, yeah, it was, it was completely of no consequence. And I thought it was a great validation of um, some of the work Amir did. I was the one that decided to get rid of the mempool. He had a mempool and I'm like, yeah, we don't, we don't need it. We don't need this in memory. So um, when that happened, it was, it was brilliant because, you know, they did it right. And every time somebody says, oh, I'm going to make a block of on the Bitcoin. I want to know how to query all your transactions into a database. I'm like, why the hell would you do that? <laughs> you are not going to get a database that's going to, that's going to retrieve transactions faster than, than this. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Uh, there's so many exciting things that that can happen from there, but there's still a lot of engineering work to happen. So, so you've you've this this conversation has been enlightening for me. Uh, I'm I'm definitely going to be using this uh, Bitcoin. Um, but now now I want to go back to the uh, we we're sort of like running a little bit on time. Um, but I want to I want to ask this last question, which is I'm I'm seriously considering writing a, like a, a lightning kind of thing but specifically targeting um uh taproot it would be like i i don't i won't even follow the specifications of of what lightning systems are out there i i'm it'll be like greenfield basically do you have any advice or guidance on this or even the very necessity of it um of writing writing a, a layer two like uh, just be the dentist be the dentist who pulls the bad tooth I'm not, I'm not, so you're talking about writing a lightning implementation using... No, no, I, well, I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm preparing to, to put down some, you know, to, to actually implement uh, a layer two, you know, um, uh, type technology. Uh, it could be a, like a um, hash time lock contract or, or even this, this concept called RGB, um, which was discussed in a previous Indaba I had with, with, uh, with Max. Um, yeah, and I, I'm, and I'd like to hear your, your, your opinion on, on, well, like layer two. I mean, you, yeah, the main issue really so far that I've got is, is whether we, whether we disconnect from settlement. Is that the main issue as well as running the node full time? Yeah. I mean, you're not a layer if you're disconnected, right? You're an altcoin. Um, yeah, exactly. So, so you just, just got to make sure that the settlement happens. Yeah, that, that, I mean, to me, that's what defines, I, there's some small comment about this in the book, but that, that's, what, that's what the distinction is between layering and, and altcoins is, is that yeah. you, you know, your security model is based on settling on the, on the, on the underlying coin. And that's what makes right, it. Right, right. And if, you're, if your security model is based on settling on an underlying layer, then you're another layer over that, right? Um, so, uh, but, you know, there's, there's been God, countless, you know, proposals for all these things. And I, I, I can't even keep up with the work I got to do just to, you know, do the engineering work I want to Understood. do stuff that's already shipped in, in widespread Understood. use in Bitcoin. So um, I, I just don't, I don't spend the, the time to get too deep into any of that because okay. it's not, to me, it's not essential to like the fundamental economic theory and make some comments here and there on lightning. But I, I, I try not to go too far because if I haven't implemented it, I don't fully understand it. Everything I talk about in Bitcoin, I've implemented, and I've implemented most of Taproot. And even then, I don't fully understand it, right? But um, um, 
So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not the right guy to ask anything about like specifics, um, except That's from an economic, you know, kind of security principle standpoint, you, you are a layer if you settle, if you need to settle, right? And you're another coin if you don't. Um, okay. And I don't know whether that distinction matters, but... Um, yeah, and, okay. But I, well, my advice would be to whatever you're going to do, right? Write up like a one-page executive summary of, like the core principles and put it out there and get feedback because I don't know how many things I've seen where like after I don't know, Chia raised 20 million bucks and worked for years, a couple of years, at least, I don't know, on a white paper with PhDs and whatever. And I saw the thing, you know, in a, in a tweet first, when it first came out, I'm like, there's something wrong with this. Right. I, and, you know, and I, I read like the summary and I'm like, Oh, well, it's, you know, it's not going to achieve its objectives. I told, I tweeted back like the same day, Brad Cohen on uh, Twitter. And I'm like, dude, you know, you're awesome. But this is, this is, it's not a shit coin. It's a proof of work coin. He just didn't realize it. And uh, I pointed out, it won't, it won't, you know, if you get to the same level of security as Bitcoin, it'll consume the exact same amount of energy. Um, the objective was to do something that was, you know, secure, like proof of work, not proof of stake, but didn't consume much energy. I'm like, well, that sounds contradictory. And then when I looked at it, I'm like, they're just going to just going to manufacture hard drives to the extent that you've consumed as much money in the manufacturing as you're consuming energy, you know, and therefore the manufacturing costs of what's the manufacturing energy is what's going to consume the same amount of energy. And another year went by and um, I think it was Baltic Honey, Honey Badger, the first one. And I went to where this had just come out. And I was talking to people about it then. I was pointing it out. It just happened. And then about a year went by and there was another thing on Twitter. And I, I, I was commenting to Bram about it again. I'm like, look, you know, you guys have this issue. And, and, uh, and so eventually I think he blocked me. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, he doesn't want people to hear about this. So about a year after that, I got, I got a message from one of their, one of the people that had done a lot of work on it with them. He was part of the team. I don't know. He's a volunteer or what, but it was like a PhD in something or other. And, and he's like, yeah, we, we finally realized you were right and we're pivoting to whatever. It was, it was all proof of work. I'm like, well, yeah, that's been done, you know. So and now I don't know if it even exists anymore. But would have saved a lot of time if before. I mean, once once you've already written the white paper, you've hired the team and you've, you've got investors, you're committed. It's too late, right? <laughs> that's yeah. the thing I got. Yeah. It's like, yeah, maybe this makes sense, but it's too late. This train has already left the station. So get the ideas out early. We'll do. And don't worry about competition. That's not the problem. You know, uh, get them out there and, and let people give you feedback. And, and well, Eric, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for this. Uh, and thank you very much for the contribution to the space. It's a uh, it's, uh, Herculean. <laughs> it's, uh, I like it for me. So. Excellent. Okay, so. I appreciate it. Hopefully get to right. sometime.